Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, boy, we're back. Uh, the VPZD Show, episode 24. We've been off for a month. I've got Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm Dr. Zubin Damanya. This is a medical news and entertainment show. It's, could such a thing ever have been conceived of prior to Two handsome Indian men doing it. My answer, no. No, it couldn't have happened until this moment. Um, and uh, <laughs> we're back after a one-month hiatus. People have been pinging us. Where's the show? Where's the show? Where's the show? Did you two have a falling out? No, we had a vacation, all right? You have things yeah. to do. I got things to do. It's August. It's hot. Who the hell wants to be working all the time? Listen, if Wall Street can take a break in August and just sell all the stocks and, and go away for a while, you know, <laughs> Two doctors can do that too, all right? We, contrary to popular belief and I, we are in fact human. We have 23 chromosomes, well, plus or minus chromosomes. And uh, we had, we had you know, some uh, other stuff to do, but we're back and we're excited and there's so much to talk about. We're gonna talk about Lena Wen. We're gonna yep. talk about Omicron specific boosters and the level of uptake in kids less than five with this vaccine. We're gonna talk about Djokovic. We're gonna talk about the American Academy of Pediatrics and you wrote a, uh, a rather uh, scathing piece in Sensible Medicine, our joint platform. Well, what I like to call fair and balanced piece, a fair and balanced <laughs> piece, yeah. It is fair, we'll, well, we'll talk, we'll talk, we'll get to I'll it. I'll play devil's advocate on this one, uh, but I love it, I love it. And science uh, is dying is a, a, a proposition that was recently made to us and we'd like to talk about that. Ab and we'd like to, right? We'd like to wrap it up with Dr. Oz just because, I mean, why not? <laughs> I mean, after it's after we season. get through all these topics, the science is dying part, that'll write itself. But um, <laughs> That's true. You don't even have to talk about Dr. Oz. It's just inferred. It's kind of like a parachute. You don't have to study it. You know it works, right? You know Which it is works. the basis of many of the things we talk about, the fact that these supposed parachutes are far from when you actually study them. And so how come we don't study these parachutes? Oh, so yeah. kick it off, VP. What's up with – who is Lena Wen and uh, – and what's going on with her? Who is Lena Wen? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so first, I'll introduce her. Then I got to put my big caveat, which is, you know, I haven't always agreed with her. But on this issue, it's really something. So uh. this, this happened over the last month. Lena Wen, um, she is a uh, emergency medicine doctor. I believe she's also a adjunct professor in the George Washington School of Public Health. And she is somebody, I think, in, pu in public health and medicine who's had really a meteoric rise. She, uh, I believe, is a Rhodes Scholar. She graduated from Harvard Medical School. She was a doctor at a very young age. She um, translated that into a pretty successful public health career. She was the former commissioner of public health for Baltimore City. And then she was the president of Planned Parenthood. She is a, I think, known and professed uh, progressive Democrat. 
She was the Planned Parenthood president. She had a falling out with Planned Parenthood when she left the organization. I think the crux of the disagreement was Lena Wen felt like it would be strategic for Planned Parenthood to place abortion in the broader context of women's health. And Planned Parenthood, of course, many strong advocates in that organization felt like abortion is an issue that needs to be defended on its own merits. At least that's what the reporting made it seem, why she transitioned out of that role. And then during COVID-19, she's been a frequent pundit. She is, um, I mean, I think even her critics will have to admit she's good on TV. You know, she's good on CNN. She's good on MSNBC. She's a good television personality. Uh, she speaks clearly, succinctly. You and I both know how hard that is to find in this world. <laughs> what, what are you t- what, huh? Uh, yeah, let's just have some some more uh, uncertain guests on our channels and we'll, we'll get a taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so we know. So she's a good speaker and, and she's a good writer. I mean, she's written many uh, op-eds. I mean, she might be 100 plus op-eds, Washington Post, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I got to say up front, because people are always going to razz me about this. They're like, well, you know, she was on the wrong side of a lot of issues. And I have to admit that from pretty much the summer of 2020 until maybe about mm, four months ago, I would always disagree with her. I mean, why do we disagree? She was pro-school closing. I was pro-school opening, even in the fall of 2020. She was pro-masking kids at a very young age. I was against it. When the vaccines came out, she was pro-mandates and fire people if they don't comply. I was against that. I thought that was not good policy for America, the America I know. Um, She was a strong proponent of vaccine passports. I thought that was a dangerous idea. She even said some things like unvaccinated people should have a hard time in life. I thought that was discriminatory and wrong. Um, And even when Omicron was coming, I think she even said something like we should preemptively close schools. And I said that was wrong, too. So I've, I've done nothing but disagree with her on the issues. But in the last four months, she has really made a substantive shift. I think she has accepted the premise that we will all eventually get infected with Omicron. And everything about her philosophy has changed as a result. She's not talking about passports. She's not talking about mandates. She's talking about getting kids out of masks. She's talking about return to normalcy. She's talking about that balance. And that makes her very interesting, Zubin, because she is team Covidian, team thesis, moving to team antithesis. Moving to team, you know, the reality, I like to call it, COVIDian and reality. She's made team a big synthesis. move. Yeah. Yeah. And her following, you know, on Twitter is team COVIDian. She's amassed hundreds of thousands of people from that camp. And so when she moves, they're going to get angry. And they got so angry with her. I mean, lately, it seems like everything she does is wrong. They, uh, you know, criticize every op-ed she writes. And you know how it is on social media. It's not about like, oh, Lena Wen, I disagree with you because here's the evidence that I think supports the policy. It's always Lena Wen. Who is this person to talk? Why is she sharing her story? You know, attack her, attack her, attack her, uh, you know, as a person. Uh, And uh, all right, this is the background. This is who she is. Uh, This is why I've disagreed with her. But what really got me interested was the American Public Health Association. They're having a conference. And that conference is, I don't know, their annual you know, bore, boring conference. Let's be honest with you, man. These conferences. <laughs> oh, they are the worst. They <laughs> are the worst. I know because I have yeah. to speak at some of them and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> God. And, and they'll be like, I hope you're coming to watch the rest of the talks. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I sit through about five minutes and I'm like, I want to stab myself in any part of me that would kill me instantly. 
<laughs> it's so terrible. Yeah, I, I, I'd rather watch CNN in the airport lobby than have to sit through some of these. <laughs> oh, I mean, CNN of all things. Yeah, you know, and just a side <laughs> note about conferences, like why are the talks so bad? It's nothing against you know anybody. Um, there are many topics that are good, but one of the challenges is some scientific topics are really, really esoteric, and those are naturally going to be boring. Just like if we just talk about some esoteric part of science, our podcast is not going to have the same reach as if we have a more broader show about all of medicine. That's one. Two. They're not selecting speakers for giving a good talk. They're selecting speakers for written abstracts. And, you know, obviously you might select some people who aren't the best speaker. Um, and that put those things together and you got some boring days ahead of you. If you're going to a conference, it's pretty boring. Oh, man. And and again, it gets to that thing. Actually, Offit wrote a book. Paul Offit wrote a book about this, about science communication. And he, he basically points right at the source, which is a lot of the people who are scientists who are like these, you know, Enneagram type five expert, you know, intellectuals are not by design communicators. They're not um, necessarily great teachers. Um, and that's fine. You need them to do the research. But then how come how come we can't have an aspect of that that actually communicates really well? Maybe one of their postdocs or somebody else who's good at it. But yeah, anyways, back to back to this a, this American uh, what is it? American Academy of Public Health? American Public Health Academy. Uh, to be honest, I'm I'm not sure it, about the order it of the matter. words. The word salad public order. Health. <laughs> word salad. Word salad. Spell world backwards. Uh, world backwards. I'm worried and, about and your, Let me just uh, count down by sevens. It's, it's by sevens, <laughs> which I they couldn't count, do it, 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 in the best seven. of my intellect. Yeah. And, and you know, remember when Trump did that exam and he was bragging about it on, the, on yeah. TV and he was like a, a woman, camera, microphone. <laughs> It was just the things he was, he's like, I remember all the words. Yeah. I remember all of them. I, I, my, my memory's huge. <laughs> it's yeah. huge. <laughs> well, I didn't remember what was in those boxes, but I mean. <laughs> well, you know. I, don't know. I, mean, I can already you know. see the emails well, anyway, we're going to catch. Yeah, you know, that well, offhand no, I mean, comment you made about the boxes, you know, it's just like that time you made that offhand comment about cops and, and shooting black people and so on. I mean, I'm, I'm the one who gets these emails, VP. You're not oh, really I checking see. your Well, email. I mean, the offhand I, comment about the box, I mean, I don't know. I mean. I forget mean, it. I find it hard forget to believe I, I, that I, I, he I, even I, reads what's in the box. But anyway, okay, anyway, let's yeah, put that aside. Yeah. Okay, back to Lena Wood. So she, <laughs> she, okay, so the the things I want to tell about her story, one, you know, whether you love her or you hate her, you got to admit she's a qualified person, right? I mean, she's played major roles in U.S. public health policy for dec for a long time. You know, you can, you mm -hmm. can, e even when I disagreed with her, I can't deny she was the former planned pre president of Planned Parenthood. I can't deny she was the Baltimore City Commissioner. She is somebody who's been in this ballpark you know she has every right yeah. to comment and when i disagreed with her and i didn't like what she said which was often you know what i did i wrote my own op-ed and i pushed mm. my own op-ed and you know and i did that on school closure exactly i read her op-ed my wanted to rip my hair out i thought to myself is it worth it to get a fight with lena wen no i'll just do my own op-ed and push for what i want okay mm. but she's a traitor to a certain group of people and those are the covidians and she's a traitor mm. to the people who've enriched the american public health association and they decided at this year's conference to invite her on a panel. This is some rando panel. And the panel is on backlash. Public health people who speak out and get backlash. That's the panel. She's one of several people on the panel, okay? And they say, you gotta cancel her. <laughs> oh, wow. They got an open letter, an open letter. Wow. Okay, an open letter. Let me read you some of it, some of the gems this from this. This is great, oh man. As public health practitioners, educators, students, advocates and allies and by the way 
I got to point out, what is a public health ally? I mean, yeah, yeah what is that? What does that mean? I'm public <laughs> yeah. health adjacent. What, what, what is I mean, that? If you're an ally, wow. aren't you just an ad, aren't you an advocate? Aren't you even a practice? <sighs> I mean, I, I don't think I think they're, wow. they're misusing their terms. OK, I, actually, actually, let, let me stop you there. What does ally mean? It means an alliance in a tribal or, or group kind of warfare dynamic, a conflict dynamic. That's what it means. Yeah. And so they're very specific with what it means. They're not saying somebody who's a scientist or somebody who's trying to promote truth. They're saying someone who will battle for our ideology. Oh, I, 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 that's, that's an interesting connotation. The other way I read it is that um, an ally by nature is not someone in the group itself. It's someone outside of the group. You're not in the group, but you can be mm -hmm. allied with it. But in my point about public health is the moment you start saying anything about public health, you're in it. You're in it. You're in the thick of it. Yeah. You're not an ally. Yeah. You're in it. You're an advocate. You're, you're, a, you're a practitioner. You're an educator. Anyway, but anyway, yeah. whatever. As, the, yeah. as, as blah, blah, blah. We are deeply concerned with the decision to make Lena Wen a speaker at the American Public Health Association annual meeting. Currently, Dr. Wen is slated to be a speaker presenting on backlash and particularly regarding misinformation. We are demanding our colleagues and fellow leaders in public health reconsider and replace Dr. Wen with someone whose work is consistent with anti-racist, anti-eugenicist public health practices and community health. Jesus H. Christ, you gotta be fucking kidding me, really? Yeah, yeah they, they called her, a, and even like, you know, Eric Wadera, professor University of California, San Francisco, he's like, you know, come on, you can disagree with someone, but do you really think Lena Wen is a eugenicist racist? Yeah. I mean, okay, it's a bit much. Anyway, but it goes on. Through her platform on news outlets and social media, Dr. Wen has promoted, and every one of these is hyperlinked, unscientific, unsafe, ableist, fat phobic, and unethical practices during the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. In a recent oh article, Dr. Wen suggested that infection should be accepted as a, quote, new normal. In another article, she writes about how learning loss is a threat to children from parents who want to keep their kids safe. But it, it, but it, is, it is a threat to children. <laughs> what are you talking about? And then says, despite the fact that as of 8-6-2020, 1,376 kids have died from COVID-19 infection. And I believe that's actually an erroneous statistic. I think it's, that's the statistic off by 20%. The CDC mm. has admitted that error. In yet another mm. article, she advocated for, quote, hot vac spring, suggesting while still in an Omicron surge that municipalities lift all protections except vaccination. Her recommendations also include the unscientific and nonsensical suggestion of designating a section of planes to wearing masks in response to an airborne pathogen. The gin. Oh boy. Wow. Oh boy. Wow. And then it goes on and on. But then there's two things I want to talk about in this letter. One, you know, when I was reading this, that the word fat phobic, it stuck with me. Yeah. I thought to myself, you know, this is a young doctor who is very successful on TV often and a very careful person in her rhetoric, you know? She's a very yeah, she's very politically savvy. Savvy, yeah. She's, yeah, yeah. She's politically savvy. You can yeah. disagree with her and acknowledge that she doesn't often. She's not a gaff factory. She's not a gaff right. maker. Right. And I see they've said she's. She said something. She did something fat phobic. And I, the, my first thought was, you know, I just I couldn't imagine her taking a cheap fat shot. You know, I just couldn't imagine it. So I clicked. I made. I clicked on the link, Zubin. I clicked on the link. And uh, what do you think I found? Let me read it to you. I'm clicking oh on the link right now. It's loading. It says, "Oh, <laughs> this is what she did." That's uh, that's fat phobic. I'm feeling shamed already, Vinay, and I, you know, I'm I'm a little chubby here, and I'm feeling I'm already defensive. <laughs> so this better be good. It says, "Hey, Krispy Kreme, Krispy Kreme donuts." She tagged him on Twitter. I love that you want to thank people for getting a COVID-19 vaccine. Every incentive helps, and free donuts may help move the needle. 
However, donuts are a treat that's not good for health if eaten every day. Here are my suggestions for what to do instead. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, dude, she, 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 a public health expert, is giving the provocative and controversial advice that yes, you can eat Krispy Kreme donuts, but don't do it every day. <laughs> 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 I, I am so triggered right now. I mean, first of all, it's clear that she's going up against the big cream uh, lobby here and was squashed. The, 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 okay, what? So that's fat phobic. Is it? That's I what mean, they're saying is fat phobic. And, and yes. I can't imagine what they thought was ableist. And I what, what well, eugenicist? That's my favorite. You, you know what? Eugenicist. We we pro we probably oh should God. go ahead and lift some restrictions now that everyone's immune to this thing and has had most people have been vaccinated. Every, there's all this immunity. Maybe we should lift restrictions. Oh my God, that's so ableist. What about the one person who could die of COVID even though they're fully vaccinated and have had it four times? Th this I, is the definition I, of insane. Yes, and I mean, I guess the problem with even that argument is is that uh, Lena Wen's starting point from her argument is that we are all going to get this virus, okay? So there's two things you can do. You can go about normal life with minimal restrictions and we'll all get this virus, or right. you can have severe restrictions and you'll get the virus anyway. So whatever yep. the ableist argument is, it's going to be exactly the same, but we'll also have a self-inflicted wound of closing down the economy, et cetera, and closing down kids' education. So which do you want? Do you want just one wound, the virus, or do you want the virus and the self-inflicted wound of the stupidity response? That's the argument. That's the choice. And they want to call that ableist. That's a deranged point of view. But I want to come back to the donut, Z. The donut. Mm, mm, listen. Krispy Kreme. Listen. Listen. I'm not a I'm not a nutrition purist, you know. I'll eat anything, okay? Me within, too. Okay, well, within within I'm parameters. Not, I'm, I'm not Anthony Bourdain either. Let's not go crazy. But you know, okay, I'm not a purist. <laughs> okay, but is it bad public health advice to tell someone don't eat Krispy Kreme donuts every day? I mean, Krispy. She's not even just saying don't eat donuts every day. She's saying don't eat the single most worst fucking donut I've ever seen in my life every day. She's saying, don't eat it every day. Isn't that just good advice? That's just reasonable advice. How can you disagree and actually say, I suggest as a American public health official, our ally, that you should eat those donuts every single day? I mean, what are we doing? I think it's pretty clear that the nonsensical nature of the attack on her. So since it doesn't make sense logically, that means it's not a logic-based attack. This is the work of what, this is an interesting concept to introduce, this idea of conflict theory versus mistake theory. So in the world, there's kind of two large, and this is simplifying it all, two kind of game theory types of behavior. One is a mistake theorist who goes out and argues thinking, okay, I'm actually a little bit naive about the world. I don't think people are trying to manipulate things. I don't believe in conspiracies. I just think people people are either too dumb or they don't have enough information to make the decision that I already know is correct because I looked at this data. So I'm gonna go out and persuade them by giving them information and using logic and just being very clear. And the mistake theorist is someone like, um, you know, I don't know, someone like Johnny Anitas, who's like, hey, here's the data that we have. And, and wouldn't imagine that there is another type of person in the world, the conflict theorist, who believes the world is actually innately unjust, that it's not about so much truth. It's about trying to push whatever agenda you think is less bad for the world and whatever means it takes, because the other side's going to do the same thing. It's a zero sum game. It's about winning. 
And so you have the this public health organization group that's advocating to basically deplatform and cancel Lena Wen, who's already been invited to speak at this on this panel, which is very appropriate because she's been speaking about this for a long time. And she has deep understanding and connections in the space and actually on the ground experience that a lot of the people who are writing about her would kill to have mm-hmm. as Baltimore Health Commissioner and head of Planned Parenthood. I mean, these are major public health positions. So Instead, what they say is, okay, now this is now a threat to our stated viewpoint of X. So the conflict theorist then goes to battle, rallies the allies, and tries to exclude this person instead of debating or writing in a way that tries to find greater truth because, oh, no, Lena just maybe doesn't understand all the information. Let's give her some knowledge on this. Here's data that shows that masking two-year-olds is a great idea. Here's data that shows that closing the schools was a great idea. No, no. Now, and you could criticize Lena and say, well, she should have known that back then and she was playing politics because she is a very good politician. And now that she feels that the political winds are shifting, she feels it's okay to say what she really thinks, which is the following, which she's saying now. Now, I mean, again, I'm being a cynical conflict theorist by pointing this out. Um, but that that's my thinking on this is this is now, you know, this game of zero sum winning and she's excommunicated from the tribe that she was in, this group hive mind of, of thinking this one way. And she's, and, and if she thinks she's going to join another hive mind like the 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 antithesis hive mind well they're going to they're going to accept her only to the degree that she toes every single line and when the minute she starts talking about um abortion or something else that offends that sensibility of that tribe it's going to be game over for her there so if she's behaving like a mistake theorist she's going to lose in every single tribe like mistake theorists always do but what do we want in the world right we're trying to find Better policies, better truth, better evidence, better rational thinking, less emotional reasoning. And yet here we are entirely with emotional reasoning, with this sense of fragility. Oh, my God, we got to deplatform her because she's going to she's going to harm us. Oh, and that's 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 one of the things that gets me, which is that what do you think she's going to do up there? She's going to come up there and just rip (laughs) off her mask and say, I have COVID. I mean, what's she (laughs) going to do? What's she going to do? She's just going to make a few points. And if you don't like it, you can roll your eyes. And and if anything, it might add a little spice to a meeting that's so bland. Oh, my God. I just want to make one point about her. Although I do think she's politically savvy, although I do think she's a careful person about her word choice. You know, I I don't know if I I believe that she is – always takes her position out of a sake of politics. And here's why. Because when she wanted to have vaccine passports, she was way harsher than you need to be. Like, you know, you don't, you you could have said it without saying we need to make life hard for the unvaccinated, you know? And so Mm. I thought like, that didn't feel to me very politically savvy. I mean, politically Mm. savvy in the sense like she's not trying to hurt your feelings if she genuinely doesn't believe it. Like she's not, Mm -hmm. she's not a gaff factory. But she, but, but if she does believe in harsh measures, I, I'm not sure she's going to shield it just for the political benefit it may provide. She was very harsh on those issues when she mm. believed it. And now, you know, she also, she could imagine, you could imagine the politically savvy thing to do is just to be a little bit quiet, give it a little bit more time, and then start saying kids need to go back to normal. She's, she's one step, you know, in, in you know, she's, she's walking out before the hurricane is fully gone, you know? Um mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and that might not also be politically savvy. Mm. And, and, mm. and I guess both of those things is probably also why I think people have to accept that there is some appeal to her as a speaker because you do smell a little authentic. I mean, you, maybe you smell some authenticity because, yeah. as you know, authentic people will say what they think, even if they're getting booed in the moment. At whatever cost. At whatever, at whatever cost. cost. Yeah. 
I think that's very that's a very good counter to my speculation. I wasn't saying she believes no, 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 that yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, but but it's a good counter because people often will fall into this trap of assuming the, this kind of mind reading fallacy, like oh no, she's behaving this way because of this. Well, you know, you don't know that, and your your observations of her behavior <laughs> from a objective perspective actually do kind of. Uh, paint a, a, a more persuasive case that she's actually just authentically saying what she believes at that moment. And you could argue that, well, the source of belief is actually to be questioned. Like, why did she believe otherwise before? Is it because she's feeling the collective weight of the organizations she represents or the, or the tribe that she's in or whatever? Or is it because she really believes it based on looking at the raw data and her own conditioning? And, and we could ask that about ourselves too, right? You, in fact, you have to always. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's a really, this is actually a really interesting case. The case of Lena Wen. It sounds the like a, you know something Lena that would Wen. show up on Only Murders in the Building or something. The case of Lena Wen, and uh, you know, and d- I, don't forget yeah, yeah. now she she yeah. she's actually an interesting character because I met her course, back in yeah. 2014 at TED because she was doing a talk and I'd done a talk the previous year and they invited me as a previous speaker to come and I met her backstage and I found her to she actually felt very authentic at the time, yeah, um, and was very approachable and and we uh, rapped for a little yeah. bit. Uh, so, but the thing is, she's also a Chinese immigrant. I mean, like, yes. I think first generation yes. <clears throat> and um, yes. has had to overcome a lot of stuff. So in the tribe that is now attacking her, she's actually the gold standard of a female immigrant who's overcome a considerable bit of adversity. But the way that they pivot and turn on her so quickly based on her inability to toe the ideological line in there is interesting. And I'll say one more thing that it will get me in a lot of trouble, but I don't care because I no longer care. Part of the thing I did this last month was another meditation retreat. And one of the insights that I had, whether it's real or not, doesn't matter. It's all belief, is that the world of our thought-based matrix is entirely self-constructed. And so I don't care what people think of me anymore because it's a matrix. It's all just a story. I think people in general, the public health space, is are they're not the most rigorous evidence-based thinkers. Yes, they are people who go in with a certain <laughs> ethos. They're like, we want to help people. They have a generally a particular political bent. Um, and that's great. That's wonderful. But they are not, they're not going to stake the claim to the highest levels of evidence-based rigor. Um, and, and there's a lot of specialties in yeah. medicine that are like and, that. Um, there, there are a few people who are in public health, particularly the epidemiology branch, who are extremely rigorous. But I think we have to admit that a lot of public health is not very rigorous. And so, yes, I absolutely think that's right. That's part of this equation. Um, and and yeah. that might also be why I think the, the if you were to poll all people who are quote-unquote public health and all people who are quote-unquote economists on the questions of school closure and uh, school reopening and even the pros and cons of masking, these kinds of big questions, I bet the set the midpoint of the public health people will be more pro-shutdown, pro-lockdown, pro-closure, pro-mask, and the midpoint yes. of the economists will be more less lockdown, less shutdown, less closure, less mask. And I think the economists will be right. Uh, they'll be more likely to cite data, more likely to understand the trade-offs. Uh, you know, I, I think that's the reality of it. Now, that's that's not, what they do. That's, that's what, what they, they do. do. Yeah. But you know, I think there may be yeah. some other issues in the world where they're the ones wrong, but on this one, these sets of issues, I think like the Emily Oster and her ilk are more right. But, back, but two points I wanna make here. One, Lena Wen. There's a spectrum of authenticity, like the most authentic, a politician that just pretty much says whatever they want, irrespective of the consequences. They never apologize. They never walk it back. You know, uh, we all know someone like that. <laughs> right. And Rhymes and, with you know, rump. Yeah. Yeah, right. And, and even the people <laughs> who like disagree, um, you know, if we're perfectly honest, even when you disagree, occasionally somebody who's really unfiltered like that 
they do they do make you smile i mean i mean i don't know it's an instinctive thing like they say something and you're like you know well yeah i mean it's kind of true i mean yeah yeah and and you know and just so that people don't think like you know say trump has a monopoly on this look at someone like aoc she says what she thinks she does it in a pretty provocative way and sometimes you you're like i'm like yeah she got a point they are crooks that's pretty incisive yeah exactly and even that Fetterman exactly. who we'll talk about when we talk about Oz. I mean, sometimes yeah, he yeah, says something yeah. very blunt. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are politicians who are so polished and teleprompter and they only say the script, you know, even yep. though they ex- can be extremely accomplished. And that might yep. even be like Hillary in the campaign. And I right. think the problem with that is Americans don't like that. They don't like somebody yeah. who feels yeah. like they're always on message, always on point. They like yeah. something in between, something where they That's feel right. like sometimes they're being un, you know, unfiltered. And to be honest, I think maybe that's somebody who I I uh, I, I like, uh, Pete. I think one of his problems is he comes across a little too scripted. You want somebody mm-hmm. who's willing to speak a little more extemporaneous. Um, anyway, Lena, I think she comes across something in the middle. Sometimes she's on, you know, very strict, but sometimes I think she is a little bit more, um, you know, provocative. But then yeah. the next point I want to make, we can move aside from her. Um, the next point I want to make about is this public health association, which I think is, you know, it's shame on them for writing such a stupid letter. It's a stupid letter. I mean, you know, you're you're writing a stupid letter when you want to cancel somebody who, like, let's be honest, Zubin, she like 97 percent agrees with them. She's like a yeah. pro a pro choice Democrat, tax the rich, distribute the wealth, have Medicare for all, single payer health care kind of person. You know, right. um, she is 97 percent in agreement with them. Throughout the pandemic, she was the most pro vaccine passport mandate person, the most school closure person, and then just recently, you know, she shared the anecdote that you know she feels like one of her own children has had some speech delays from masking she feels like we're all going to get COVID anyway what's the point of all this she's having a little bit of a turnaround so she's like disagreeing with them three percent like hey guys maybe it's time we take it a little bit easy and they won't tolerate it at all uh they won't even like oh she shouldn't even be allowed to speak she's dangerous and then they just start lying about her like lying that i mean come on to say you're fat phobic when you tell people don't eat Krispy Kreme donuts every day, you know, that's just a lie. And they also say in this letter, you know, we should disinvite her uh, based not separate from COVID-19. Her record as president of Planned Parenthood, a position from which she was fired, should be considered as further rationale, particularly during this political moment. And what they mean is that she wasn't pro-choice enough for them. Enough. Uh, enough. I'm like, she's the, the president, president of Planned of- I know. Uh, okay. This is so, again, it gets, it gets to exactly she's not one of us anymore because she, she violated the sacred tenets of the ideology in some way. It doesn't matter. And now she's fully out. Now, what would a, what would a mistake theorist get excited about in this whole thing if she's coming to speak at this organization and they disagree with her? Oh my God, here's a chance to debate her. Here's a chance to show her what's actually true because the other people on the panel will tell her what's up, right? So this is great. In fact, invite her and invite Robert Malone and invite you know the, these other guy McCullough and oh we God. can teach them about <laughs> vaccines. Like that's what a that's what a mistake theorist would say, right? But a, all the conflict theorists would be now. This is oh God, don't even bring her there because then it's just gonna, oh she's going to have a platform we don't want to give her a platform well you know she might influence people I, like i totally share your view that they should invite people with even more diverse points of views than this woman who disagrees three percent but the people i would think of is i would put martin i would put jay Bhattacharya, and i put maybe francois below rather yeah, than i agree Malo- yeah, Malo- yeah. no no I I malone i, I no, put right, out yeah, as an extreme example yeah, you wouldn't right, invite right. malone just because he doesn't know what he's talking about i mean but everybody yes. else yeah no i mean even i mean what i would say is the distinction is that uh uh, uh, that uh, you can disagree with someone and see that there is like a, 
a logic to what they're saying, even though you disagree. Right. And right. then you can see somebody who's like train of thought is like a train that's derailed off the track. You know, that's right. I mean, okay, that's just my opinion. But okay, but, that's ba right. but, but back to her. Um, the other point I want to make to you is this. People will say, you know, you're not equally hard on the whatever, I don't know, the extreme other end of the spectrum where they're pro, uh, you know, COVID's no big deal. You can walk it off like it's nothing. It's like just the cold. But by the way, the moment you get it, you got to swallow this fistful of ivermectin, <laughs> like ASAPZ, ASAP. You can need ivermectin, this vitamin D, hydroxychloroquine, you know, this, you know, whatever. You got to take this cocktail and swallow it like immediately, even though like, even though it's like totally no big deal. And totally like, a walk totally, it off. It's like, to it's yeah. a totally walk it off thing. But if you don't swallow Swallow these twenty-five pills right away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh, so, woe be unto you. Yeah. Okay. So you know why are we not equally critical of that side of the spectrum? And the answer is that side of the spectrum, as far as I can tell, they're not hosting an actual conference called the American Public Health Association. Like this side of extreme uh, COVIDian activists is actually deeply infiltrated the academy. This is who the people are in power. These are the people in power. That other side of people who want whatever bag of Skittles kind of cocktails. Um, they're not in power. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. They're not in yeah. power. Yeah. Some states, they have so little power that like, it's like, I don't know, didn't they make it illegal to even prescribe some of those drugs off label, which is a, sort of a very bold move because, yeah. you know, even though there are lots of drugs off label that I disagree with prescribing, I'm not sure I think the right solution is making it illegal to prescribe those drugs rather than try to educate the doctors, you know, why they shouldn't, um, you know, but anyway, some states actually made those like, isn't, I think Kansas made it temporarily very difficult to give somebody hydroxychloroquine, et cetera. Right, right. Um, Right. They have no power. They have no real political power. They have no power in the academy. They have no, um, maybe they have some power in politics, which is the last sort of like arena. Like a DeSantis state to type yeah. of Florida thing. Yeah. Yeah, but they don't have power yeah. in universities and the American Public Health Association. But meanwhile, zealots on the other side who are equally deranged in the other direction, they have a lot of power. Uh, you know, so much power that they get 500 signatories. And these people have like real degrees. Professor, professor, medical student, advocate, candidate, whatever that means, educator. I mean- 500 people signed this letter. And, and it does point to the poison 600. in the academy. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, in, in, in academics, in universities, and, and Haidt and, and Lukianoff talk about this in The Coddling of the American Mind, that the, our, <laughs> our institutions have become progressively more monolithic ideologically over the years since the late 60s. And now it really is a monoculture. And any heterodox ideas are really, really, it's not just frowned upon. You're not going to get advancement. You're not going to get tenure. You're going to be retributed again especially as a young up and coming and you just made tenured professor or you made profess full professor at UCSF like that's okay. a huge deal and that's, that's almost right. thanks for noticing Oh, not only thanks. Like I, I, I actually, you, I rarely email, use Twitter. Email right? About it? Did you get an email? I actually, okay. I, 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 I broke my own self-imposed Twitter ban to say, "Hey, congrats to VP for this massive accomplishment." Oh, thank you. you know, and very proud of UCSF, my alma mater. But, but, the, but the point being, you're kind of one of the exceptions in that you're willing to say whatever you think is true, regardless of the of the orthodoxy. And, and, and yes, again, so, so why, why do we spend so much time, kind of? focusing on this side of things well because like you said the other side is almost it, it, it they're not the mainstream <laughs> they're when, like, when you, you know. when you find me somebody in a, a national association that signs a letter that we should disinvite some speaker because they didn't want ivermectin hydroxychloroquine right, cocktail right yeah then right. i'll be giving them a hard time but there's no i don't they don't even exist in the academy they have no That's footing right. they have no footing their footing has slipped and then, That's you know, right. the other point um, to to the Lukianoff point is that, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that the failure is that 
and look, I'm a progressive Democrat, and I, there's no secret about that. Um, but I'm not sure the failure is that like we don't have Republicans in the academy. Um, although I think they are have to keep. I think they do keep quiet. I think they do keep quiet. Um, I think right. some are there, but they're quiet, and and they tend to be more sort of centrist kind of figures. Um, but I think one of the challenges is is that in this modern world, like it's really hard to think about an issue without someone spoon feeding you the answer. And whenever yeah. I, in real life, talk to somebody about masking toddlers, there are usually two moments that, I mean, so, let's say somebody who I am casually acquainted with, by the way, people who I'm actually good friends with from medical training, um, they uh, I- I- instantly always agree with me because they've reviewed the evidence. They're very similar kind of people and they know right. it's garbage and they know how crazy it is. But somebody who I'm like casually acquainted with, they come up to me and say, hey, you know, this happened to me a few months ago. Um, somebody said to me, like, you know, I, initially I thought, you know, your stances on the toddler masking weren't, um, you know, they were like really harsh and I didn't know why you were doing it, like why you were talking about that issue. Uh, but then you made a point that um, that I hadn't heard, which is that, and I hadn't thought about, which is that like they actually take off the mask for the nap time when they're all in the same room. And I thought right. to myself, like, yeah, like if they do that, it just can't possibly be doing anything. <laughs> it's just it's a it's like a quick awakening into rational thought that's delivered in person with the infinite bandwidth of personal communication where there's two humans talking to each other and by definition now it's mistake theorists by definition they're mistake theorists they're no they can't be conflict theorists because they're there they have to share a space so that's not a zero-sum game they're trying to learn from each other and i find the same experience people who are are very covidian when you just sit down and you go and you're not trying to convince them of anything you're just saying okay let me hear your understanding of this oh okay one thing i've thought about with that is this how do you think about that and then you find that there's an opening and there's a conversation and maybe you also get a better sense of the COVID, maybe the more extreme covidian sort of morality like what is it that that drives that and you realize okay okay that's coming from a place of they really see the world as like this is a good thing for people so okay so how do we find a agreement on policy then when you know again from a mistake theory standpoint like let's inform each other and debate to grow rather than to win a win a prize so i i think there's a lot of hope there for in-person stuff the problem is we're, we're doing less and less of that and more and more of the social media um which gets it's probably a good transition to the uh the omicron specific booster yeah. For the fall. Yeah. Now this, it, it's interesting. <laughs> there are already articles like how to prepare for your Omicron specific booster update in the fall. And, you know, as Paul Offit and others have said, so I'd like to see the data that says that our protection against severe disease currently has waned enough that we need a new vaccination that is shown clinically to protect better yeah. oh, against God severe forbid. disease. God forbid you yeah. want to see some data. You know, I was, I really am struck by like the, the sort of mental gymnastic it takes for people to come out and say things like, oh, you'd be crazy not to get the new booster. I was like, oh, really? Okay. Um, uh, uh, what, what, uh, what makes you think it works so well? Oh, well, you know, we did give it to some mice and, uh, we're pretty confident. <laughs> <laughs> and they have an I'm antibody like, titer of X. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, are you out of your mind? You have to do yeah. r- c- controlled human studies. Okay. Uh, it's not so difficult to understand the concept. By the way, 
you're telling me all these people who are like middle-aged, who've already gotten three doses, who all just had Omicron, many of them have, you think they benefit from your bivalent booster for the older version of Omicron, not the new, like more recent version of Omicron they had? I'm like, get out of here. Who are you pretending? No, there, I, I guarantee you there's going to be very little appetite to get this. Um, I think yes. the place of friction will be if any workplace, and I think Wake Forest already put out some nonsense statement that they're going to mandate it, but I think that nonsense, will be the friction. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. how can you mandate something that has never been given to a human being? By the way, yeah, exactly. what's the rate of myocarditis with the new booster? Well, we don't know. We don't know. And is it higher or lower? It could be much, much lower because, you know, you've weeded out the people who have the idiosyncratic reaction and you have a different, um, right. a different sequence. Right. But it could be much, much higher because now the affinity for the cardiac uh, antigen is actually tighter. And we do know one and thing from Novavax, which is that it is not mRNA, it's spike. Like for you uh, to get myocarditis from both mRNA vaccines and Novavax, which is purified protein, it has to be spike. It can't be the mRNA. Right. It can't be whatever that right. um, the lipid shell. It's got to be spike. Um, and so, you know, we don't right. know the more you tinker with the spike. What were you going to say? Yeah, no, no. I, and this, this it, and so it probably probably is an epiphenomenon of the immune reaction to the spike protein that then counteract counter reacts with cardiac tissue in some way. And what's just fascinating about this is there, in, when have we really done anything like this? You could look at flu vaccine and go, well, we you know we we tweak the flu vaccine every year, but that's had years of work on it. We and even then it's like, well, you, if you actually look at the efficacy of it, you know, it, it's there, but it's not you know stunning. But still. The, the downside is low. You don't. I don't think we have documented myocarditis at any good appreciable right. rate from flu vaccine. But you can get you know rare Guillain-Barré, although even yeah. that's a little controversial. Um, just, we don't re really even have a precedent for this. So what is the big idea here uh, in terms of pushing it? I mean, is it just that we have this momentum and Borla wants to make more money, yeah, and now Moderna's? Be, I think that yeah. has to be taken seriously. But, you know, I yeah. think your flu comparison is interesting. People always say that, well, this is just like flu. And I think it, it, there's many things you can say about that. One thing you can say is that this vaccine is more reactogenic than the flu vaccine. People, For sure. You know, when, when, you know, so many people have told me that when everyone got their second dose, like, you know, they were calling in sick all the time. You know, people were taking a day off. That doesn't happen every flu season. Okay, it's more reactogenic. Two, it's a novel platform. Okay, three, uh, it's it's we're we're going after the same virus over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, um, you yeah. know that's another salient difference. That the, the track record of the platform is different. Um, here you do worry about original antigenic sin. Um, that, yep, the, I was going to mention that. Yeah. The other difference is that you know uh, we're literally giving this vaccine to somebody who may have literally just had the infection, you know, and cleared it. Okay, it's uh, the very big difference. And um, and and then the last thing I think is that we have to also say that maybe this should make us think a little bit more about flu in a, in the other way, which is that maybe we could be generating better evidence for flu vaccines, and maybe we ought to. Um, maybe we ought to be running more randomized trials in the Southern Hemisphere prior to our flu season. Maybe we shouldn't just have a you know yearly flu vaccine, but we should have four different types. And we test it in, let's say, you know July, August, September in Australia, and actually take the one with the best clinical data, not just the best antibody or sequence data. You know, maybe we need to. Maybe we could do a better job with flu. And then the final thing is. You know, I don't think I ever was a supporter that the flu vaccine should be mandated at the hospital level. And I don't and I think most hospitals, the mandates were porous, like you could find a way not to do it if you didn't want to. Um, but with this, you know, the mandates are much more strict and people have lost their jobs. And so, you know, I'm fine with um, 
people choosing to do something with weak, you know, you know, debatable evidence. That's different than compelling somebody to do something with debatable evidence. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I used to be a, an advocate of uh, healthcare related manda- mandate yeah, of yeah. flu vaccine. And, and after COVID and after my experience with looking at data on these things, I'm, I'm much less compelled to want that mandated, uh, especially in the setting of hospitals now where everybody's, ma- everybody's masking, you know, at least with a surgical mask, which that needs to be looked at at some point. Like what's oh, right. the downside of yes. that, right? I mean, All that's right. a lot of healthcare workers emailing me, when are we going to be able to stop this? Because it's dehumanizing. Um, and you lose and, and a these, lot of the relationship. And- you lose the relationship. If, if you're treating hospitals as temples, as these kind of sacred spaces of healing, covering the faces of everybody there is a kind of an affront. It's almost a, it, it's a, it feels like a moral affront because it's a sanctity versus degradation kind of uh, uh, moral moral taste bud that's violated there. But is there actually data that, oh, actually the the rates of placebo effect and others are, are less when you everybody's mask is covered or the rates of burnout or, or feel sense of moral injury or alienation and the staff is worse, which means more turnover, which means worse outcomes. So we don't know. And like you said, this idea of flu, actually studying it in Australia, because we do have this hemispheral- Yes, yes. hemispheric uh, advantage. And we advantage. get our sequence from there. And, That's right. Uh, and to your point, you know, I think people should check out the BMJ a few years ago had a pro-con debate called, should healthcare workers be mandated to get the flu shot? And there was a pro and a con side. You know, it wasn't that long ago where it was still yeah. sort of a live debate. Um, it was live debate, yeah. You yeah. know, and 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 uh, I guess, um, uh, well, I was always, to be honest, privately critical of that, but um, uh, but 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 I do think this is a different ball game, and it is worse. I mean, this is a worse ball game. Um, the other things I think we have to be honest about is when Ashish Jha and um, Bob Califf uh, and others uh, stop being a part of the administration, are they going to work for a consult for Moderna or Pfizer? And I think that's a, that's an important conflict of interest that I'm pretty confident that these people who are currently guiding government policy that's enriching the shareholders of Pfizer and Moderna are going to go work for those companies in the future. Uh, I'll be surprised there's nothing if they to don't. Dis- there's yeah. nothing to dissuade them from doing that and everything to encourage it. Yeah. I mean, and, the and amount of money at yeah. stake. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And you've talked about this. This is not something new for you. You've yeah. been talking about this for a career. We this is something uh, you've written 2016. books on. Yeah, yeah. We published a paper in the BMJ on the um, on the turnover into those industries from uh, the revolving door, we call it. That's right. That's right. But and it's, it's let's, real. Yeah. Let's talk about yeah. the kids' vaccine for a second. I mean, I think it's in the same right. whole game. Um, right. So the less than five, less than five-year-old kids. Less than we'll five-year-old. Less than five-year-old has what? Less than five percent uptake. I mean, nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants it. Nobody yeah, wants a, it. Abysmally low. Parents are actually, and and I, I recently read a, a pop press piece on this, and they were saying, well, the parents are like, 
my kid already had COVID and it was fine, or they don't see a big reason to do it because they don't think it's that severe in kids, or they feel like maybe it's not studied that well and it's too new and they don't want to give their very small kid something like that. Whatever the case, they're not doing it. And the other interesting thing is, here's the really interesting thing is, frontline pediatricians are recommending it less. They're giving it less. They're 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 not pushing it the way you might think a group of physicians would push it if they deeply, deeply, deeply believed that that was the best maneuver. Now, this is not a cr- exclusively true. This is, again, a, a press piece saying this is what they're seeing when they talk to pediatricians and sure. stuff. Um, but, I, 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 you know, it, it is really interesting and it makes you look at, oh, maybe people actually have a degree of common sense yes. more than we're giving them credit yes. for. <laughs> that, you know, yeah, if you're really concerned about your kid and you're worried about COVID and they're at high risk, then sure. But otherwise... Uh, you, the kids already had COVID. At, at what what was what's the seroprevalence now? We think from CDC for CDC kids? January was seventy five percent, but that estimate is probably a few percentage points lower from false negative testing. And then right. since January, a lot of people have gotten COVID, so it's got to be in nineties. You know, I think high nineties <laughs> yeah. is plausible. High nineties. But, you know, a few things about this kid's vaccine. One point you're making is that, you know, parents have common sense. The child just had COVID. They just got better. And somebody's saying you should still vaccinate them. And people are saying Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, it still makes sense to vaccinate them. I'm sorry. That's just bullshit. I mean, there is no data. There is no data. You have a Singapore study that's looking at vaccine effectiveness that excluded people who had prior COVID. And even then, the absolute risks were so abysmally low. It was, you know, it didn't seem like it was a big, important choice one way or the other. If you hadn't had had COVID and a young, healthy child, and if you've had a COVID, it's got to be even, even less important. I mean, that's what all the evidence would tell you. You don't really have evidence that it provides an additional benefit after a child has had and recovered from COVID. And by the way, that vaccine for kids is still to the Wuhan strain. That's not to even Omicron. It's to Wuhan. What are we doing? You know, you know, you, you know what? Yeah. You know what's fascinating about that? We talked about original antigenic sin uh, earlier. These kids. So original antigenic sin for people who don't know, it, it's the first time you're exposed to a particular viral set of antigens, like the Wuhan strain. Your immune system kind of prints on that in a way like a little baby duckling it goes mama and it it the next time it's exposed to even a different strain it tends to really favor making antibodies to the original uh, and I'm yes. not doing this fully justice, the original strain. And so subsequent attempts to further refine um, with different uh, antigens are your immune response may meet some resistance of the immune system itself, which has kind of kind of gotten its memory from the original strain. Now, what's interesting is these little babies, they, 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 their original antigenic sin is Omicron. If they've been infected, it's like they've already been seen Omicron. Now you want to give them a Wuhan strain. <laughs> That's yeah, like, you, I mean, they doing? might make more Omicron antibodies, but they've already, they've already they've shown that they've, they've done fine with that. It, it really doesn't make um, uh, doesn't a ton make, of sense. Now, let me. Let, yeah, no, it, does, and, it doesn't make sense. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, quick devil's advocate for you. So, do you think that these these folks who advocate every kid gets uh, the vaccine under five, even if they've been infected, do you think they're playing this sort of angle of? I mean, what I mean is the way they see it is, if you could wave a magic wand and one hundred percent of four year olds could be vaccinated. They feel that the harm of that level of vaccination is small, but you would save maybe 300 lives from the kids that were just unlucky enough to get Omicron and have other conditions and it would have tipped them into something. And that's why they just say, just go ahead and do it. Don't think about it. Just go and do it. I see. That's their calculus. Um, I guess I would say that if, if that were their calculus, I would strongly disagree with them. Um, One 
because uh, you're going to have to, if you could wave this magic wand and have 100% compliance, one, you will be ending up vaccinating a lot perhaps even 90% of children who've already had COVID and recovered. So, and, and, and you say that you think the harm is low, but to be perfectly honest, you have a very short-term slice of harm captured in a randomized trial. Um, you don't know to the point you're making about original antigenic sin. You don't know what that means for the next time they meet COVID-19, if they may actually be, you know, slightly m less likely to, to, to mount an effective response. Uh, you, it may even do them some, you know, harm in the future. You don't know, uh, how, you know, what that means for them in the future. And that's like 95% of the pie and that 5% of the pie or that, you know, three, whatever that the percent of the pie that hasn't yet had COVID-19, um, uh, uh, the question is, does giving this vaccine provide a reduction in severe disease or hospitalization from the next strain that they may encounter? And the answer is, I think it's very, very uncertain. The uh, Singapore study has uh, some structural flaws in it. Uh, I would say that it's not unreasonable to say that we have very little credible evidence that below the age of 12, a child getting that Wuhan vaccine has a reduction in severe disease or hospitalization from that vaccine. I think it's clear that that was the case for an older person in January of 2021. It was a no-brainer. We pushed it. But I think it's very uncertain where we are right now in this pandemic for this age group with this risk, with these prevailing strains, with whatever strain comes next. Um, it's very uncertain. And so I guess I would say that even if they were able to achieve their magic wand experiment, I think what they don't appreciate is that the uncertainty bounds of that are so great um, that a real scientist would have the humility to know that it's a huge gamble. And then let me add to that, they won't be able to. No matter what they do, they'll never get to 100%. And knowing that they won't be able to do that, when you go forward with a statement that is not true, like we just don't know that if you hadn't recovered from COVID, you have any benefit at all from this Wuhan strain vaccine, um, you will lose trust in the public. And I think I have more confidence that the loss of trust and the loss that in MMR and polio, which is on the decline because, you know, we're finding it in the sewers now, um, right. that's going to be a greater harm than whatever theoretical benefit they might get by vaccinating the unvaccinated child who would have gotten sick but now won't get sick. Uh, I, You know, so that, that's me kind of talking you through my decision tree on that. Yeah. Yeah, and that and see now that's that's great. So uh, a mistake theorist would look at both those arguments and go, okay, I see now both sides of that. There, you, you strip out the emotion and all the conflict out of it, and you go, okay, well, what do I? How do I? How do I parse this data given the data set that I have? And then then you can make a decision as a parent too. Well, okay, I think for my kid, I want to do this. That that's how you should do it. Instead, we've really been heavy handed on both sides of this. So, yeah, some like for example, you said you said something earlier. You said, okay, with the original antigenic sin, could it be that is it possible that now we're actually hobbling their ability to respond to a new strain? And the answer is we don't know. Yes, and now, how, yeah, and like how could you know because you don't know what the new strain will be. You just don't bingo. know what you don't know. Yeah. You don't know. Now now so that's how a mistake theorist would propose that. How a conflict theorist would propose that who's a who's an antithesis side would say original antigenic sin says the following, therefore you are damaging your child's ability to respond to natural infection in the future by giving them a vaccine. Now that's a level of certainty that doesn't exist. And so, right and and I also yeah. don't want to say that I know it's deleterious because I don't know it that's is deleterious, right. right? That's right. Um but but I will say one that so that's really well put, but I'll say one broader point about medicine. In medicine, the burden of proof to intervene, to compel, to encourage, to mandate, the burden of proof is on 
the person who makes the recommendation. You know, yeah. it's not on me to prove to you that your strategy is misguided. You have to prove that it's of benefit. We know in the history of medicine, the blunders outnumber the successes. I mean, it's there are more ways to die than be alive. You know, it's it's hard yeah. to improve upon the human body. It's very hard. And you and 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 once you get to very very low risks, we're talking about risks now 110 to the power of 7. So in other words, the risk of death in a healthy child was always on the order of magnitude of maybe 110 to the power of 6. So every 100,000 kids maybe, you know, it's something like one or half of one will, you know, die. Like that was the ballpark. Now mm -hmm. when you get to omicron, maybe 10 to the power of 7 or 10 to the power of 8. Um, before somebody may have a bad outcome, you know, he, you know, really, really low odds. And once you get to that ballpark and you start playing around with, you know, speculating about what might be best, you know, have some humility to know you, you're probably wrong. You're probably wrong. I mean, more people yeah. historically have been wrong with very, very low probability risks and trying to further reduce it than they've been right. And, you know, that comes to me from, you know, years of sort of studying these kinds of questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a good, it might be a good segue into AAP instead of Djokovic. What do you think? Yeah. So the, the American Academy of uh, Pediatrics, uh, you know, the big, big organization representing pediatricians, you recently wrote a piece in our, on our, um, <gasps> on the platform Sensible Medicine, oh, yeah. where uh, you took a stance and said the AAP is a failed organization. And here are three and big. Broken. Yeah, what did you yes. say? Failed and broken. Okay. Yes, so fail, failed. That's a, that's a powerful statement. I mean, failed and broken. And here are three reasons, just the big three. And there's others that you don't mention, but the big three as to why you think that is. And um, maybe I, I can summarize them real quick and then we can talk a little more and then um, we'll see, you know, because this is already, you can see on Twitter how it's how it's met and i think it's an it, this is a great conversation um because well, the because, first thing i want to i want to clarify is one distinction i'm yeah. talking about the aap the american exactly. academy of pediatrics which is a professional organization that's supposed exactly. to defend the interests of children i'm not talking about every pediatrician in america uh exactly so yes, okay that's one distinction yeah, yeah and in fact so some of the attacks i saw on twitter were like oh so now vp who's not a pediatrician is attacking a, the doctor not a pediatrician not a pediatrician <laughs> who's attacking the yeah. doctor who takes my call at two in the morning for the ear infection this was a, a, a parent and is saying that they're you know failed and so on and it's like i don't think you read his article uh, I think sure you read the headline. Read yes. And yeah. I think you read no, pediatric screenshot because people don't have the courage yeah. to actually link to the article. Yeah. Put the link to link to the article cuz <laughs> they don't want to platform you. They don't want you to No, they, they don't want yeah. people to know that they are wrong. And if they actually read yeah, the exactly. article, a lot of people would actually be like, "Hmm, he makes a good point," mm. you know. <laughs> ah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh Go on. and yes. so yeah, and so your three your three yes. big mistakes that they've made. So the first one was peanut allergies, and this was what a couple decades ago. Uh, <coughs> this was two thousand. Yeah, and two um, thousand. Yeah, um, yeah. They be, uh, go ahead. There are many examples, but I pick this one because it's such a really good example. And this is an example of in two thousand, the American Academy of Pediatrics. There have always been some kids we were worried that were at heightened risk of peanut allergies, maybe because they have a sibling who already has a peanut allergy. Maybe it's, you know, their family has a lot of atopy in it, um, but they're at higher risk than average. And the American Academy of Pediatrics put out guidance in 2000, and the guidance had at least three recommendations. One, if you're a woman who's worried about your kid getting the peanut allergy, they're high risk perhaps, don't eat peanuts when you're pregnant, don't eat peanuts or tree nuts when you're breastfeeding, and the child shouldn't even touch a peanut or tree nut, uh, peanut, until they're at least three years old. So they actually mm. advise people, let your child 
avoid peanuts until they're three years old and only thereafter expose them to peanuts in an effort to lower peanut allergies. Okay, that's what they said. Um, this was their recommendation based on opinion. They literally mm. had the opinion. Now, what's my contention? They didn't need to say that. I would have said, if you took me in 2000, what should we advise somebody? I would say, I don't know. Because yeah. I don't know. Is it possible that delaying the exposure would result in fewer allergies? Maybe. Is it possible that early upfront exposure will reduce a few allergies? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Those are words they're not good at saying. Okay, so they didn't say, I don't know. They said something strong. People followed their recommendation. Rates of peanut allergies doubled in the population. And then investigators from the United Kingdom ran a randomized control trial. In the randomized trial, they took infants between the ages of four months and 11 months. They randomized them to early peanut exposure, the Israeli snack Bamba, which apparently is a mm. delicious, it's delicious snack. I've never had yes, it. Yes, I've had Bamba, it. or no Bamba. And then... They fought no bomba. The control arm was getting the AAP recommendation. They were deprived of peanut exposures for many, many years. That was the advice they gave to parents. They followed this randomized trial out, and they showed that the kids who had early exposure to peanuts had much lower rates of peanut allergy. Okay? So the AAP was wrong, and then they have later amended their rule. And some people argue, well, this is the natural course of science. Yeah, hypotheses come, they go, we get better evidence, we change our recommendations. No, it's not. Because it's not natural to really arrogantly say the answer when you don't know. You can just say, ah. I don't know. You, there's no rule in science that says we have to tell people some bullshit that we just thought of. You can just say, like, look, I don't know the answer. And had they actually said in the 2000 document, I don't know the answer, two things would have been different. One, parents would have decided to do whatever they want to do. And, but I know one thing, fewer kids would have had the peanut allergies because proof that their recommendation was doing some damage was that the peanut allergies are doubling over a decade. I, mean, I think that wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have doubled. It wouldn't have gotten worse. And the second thing mm. that would have happened is the randomized trial could have been done sooner because if they put their full-throated effort to support the randomized trial, it would have accrued faster and they would have gotten the result maybe five years sooner. We would have had the answer sooner. So mm. what, to, what to me is the failure here? And this is the failure that you find in so many of their guidelines. I was just leafing through, and I see that they're mired in controversy about how young a child should be when they, when they start a statin medication. And I'm not talking about familial hyperlipidemia. I'm talking about just kids who have slightly elevated LDL. Does mm. it make sense that an 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old should be on a statin medication? And the true answer is, guess what? Nobody I knows. don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We never did all the randomized trials I'm aware of excluded kids that young. And so the AAP could say, I don't know. But instead they say, and I'll give you one more example that I didn't put in the article because, you know, these articles are already like nobody going to read more than, you know, 2,000 words or 2,000 words. The other yeah. example is screen time. I mean, I think anyone who looks at a child will know, it, common sense would tell you, that no kid should be in front of the TV for 18 hours a day and not do anything else. I mean, even my mother, everybody, would, mother would say, get, hey, stop watching TV and get the hell out there and go do some playing, you know? Get out there and play. Yeah. Okay. At the same time, nobody knows exactly how much TV is good or bad, what TV shows. There's a really elegant economics paper about Sesame Street, introduction into markets, showing Sesame Street might have actually improved outcomes because for some kids, Sesame, the alternative to Sesame Street wasn't your parent reading you a book. It was nobody talking to you. And if mm. the alternative is nobody talking to you, maybe mm. Sesame Street is better than that. Maybe it's, you know, maybe an hour of TV mm. is good. Maybe two hours is good. Maybe a little early screen time is fine. We all know phones can be addictive and Facebook and the social media can be terrible, but maybe a little... 
a little educational programming is good at a young age. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I don't know. You know, but mm. the AAP, they have strong guidance. Somebody has admitted, and I think uh, a reporter from NPR has them admitting they have no good evidence for that guidance. Their guidance actually, Z, it, it says that there's an exemption for FaceTime grandma. No screens except for FaceTime grandma. I mean, they're just pulling this out of their ass. Pulling this out of their ass, yeah. Yes. Okay, so my starting point in my essay is this argument that um, the AAP has historically been very, very bad at evidence-based medicine. They talk when they don't need to talk. They may feel as if people want guidance, but the truth is when you don't have anything, if when you have no wisdom, you can't guide. They told people, don't expose the child to peanuts. Don't, don't, don't do it. And what they did was the exact, it wasn't just like neutral. It was harmful. They harmful. gave them harmful advice. Children may have died because of that. Yeah, right? I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. In fact, ironically, people who talk about children's lives, they should talk about when you talk bullshit. And that's what, I mean, this is what it is. How is it any different than, you know, we're going to talk about Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz talks some bullshit. Oh, eat this ginkgo biloba. It'll help your brain. He has no randomized data. How are you doing anything different than what this schmuck is doing, right? He, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's talking bullshit. You're talking bullshit. And guess what? Throughout human history, there were people who say, if you don't want the kid to have peanut allergies, let them drink this soup. Let them, you know, let them pluck this plant. Let them, you know, slaughter this cow. Let's, you know, put some blood on their face. You know, I don't know. You know, all this kind of right. voodoo bullshit people do. People are superstitious creatures. The thing that separates scientists from superstitious creatures is data. And they don't have data, but they still have the arrogance to talk that's what kills me okay so this is their pattern i think they often overreach and here's how they could be better they could actually say instead of a guidance they should have a guidance that says here are six randomized trials that we ought to do and we have helped prioritize which ones are most important and we're going to lobby the federal government to pay for these studies because kids deserve answers that's what they could do, but they don't want to do that. They want to sit around and come up with guidance and just invent things that they think are plausible based on whatever, you know, laboratory study that they read recently. That's what they want to do. And so in my mind, that's not acceptable. Okay. And then you want to talk about the second part. The second part is that recently politics has invaded this organization and it makes it even worse. Now their mistakes aren't just mistakes, they're catastrophes. School closures. Yeah, so that's the next part. So the next so, part is, yeah, <clears throat> maybe over the last five years, the organization, and of course we all know there are many studies that show that uh, orthopedic surgeons are more likely to be Republicans and pediatricians are more likely to be Democrats. Um, that there is a political, there's a there's a political valence of a profession. Uh, specialties have different political allegiance, um, yeah. and uh, pediatricians, family medicine doctors, primary care are much more likely to be left of center, and uh, surgeons, uh, vascular surgeons, orthopods, neurosurgeons are much more likely to be right of center. Um, this is sort of well documented. Uh, in recent years, I think the AAP has been infiltrated by a strong left of center uh, activist faction. And you take a group of people that were never good at making evidence-based decisions, and you add activism, and you have a total fiasco. And here's oh the fiasco, yeah. the schools. In June of 2020, the AAP put out a statement saying basically that the plan should be by the fall, every kid should be in person in class. Absolutely, they should be in person. It's the best for kids. They were right. In their organization, they were enough advocates that actually knew the right answer. They were right. They had the right answer. And Donald Trump went on TV in early July and he said, everybody should be back in class. And, and his administration passed out the AAP's guidance. They said, this is the proof. And Ron DeSantis had pushed very hard, you know, state level mandates to get the kids back in school. And then the teachers unions were upset and the pressure was on the AAP. And 
This is detailed in articles in NPR. The AAP walked back their recommendation. In the next couple weeks that happened into July, the AAP started saying things like, well, it should only reopen if the, uh, you know, the caseload is like low in the county. But that was, that was a lie. It was not true. We knew that you can safely reopen schools even if there's high community transmission. That is, has nothing to do with the school. The school was going to be a place of low transmission and the benefit to the kids was going to be their whole lives. You know, The benefit to the kids was going to be massive. It didn't matter what the community transmission was. And then the next thing they said was in an interview, the AAP president in NPR said that you know, they disagree with Florida. Florida should not you know, justify their choices by our guidance. And then finally... The teachers' unions and the AAP and the superintendents' unions, they co-signed a letter saying that we believe that science and not politics should drive these decisions, and it should only reopen safely, and we need more funding, blah, blah, blah. And immediately over the course of a month, the battle lines were drawn, Republicans pro-school closure, pro-opening Democrats closure, and you, we all know what happened. The places where the Democrats held the most power were the ones with the longest closures. So what happened here? The AAP says... Science, not politics, should guide the decision while they themselves are playing the worst kind of politics. They're playing naked politics. They don't want to reopen school, not because it's unsafe. They're making up things because this guy Trump, for you know, he happened to have the right answer this time, okay? He stumbled onto the right answer, and they backed away from it, and they sacrificed a generation of kids in all these places. They screwed up so badly. And why? Because they do not have a core of evidence-based principles, so they probably weren't very confident in their answer. And they are increasingly captured by naked politics. And that's why they fucked that up. And, you know, they didn't fuck it up for me. They fucked it up for a lot of young, you know, poor kids, poor minority children that they care, they claim they care about. And they were 100% wrong then. Every, every week that goes by, more and more people realize how wrong they were. Um, and in a year from now, two years from now, they, they won't have a leg to stand on. Okay, so everything you pointed out, I don't even think we need to go deeper into the other stuff because they you've already made the point here, which is very clear. You have an organization that doesn't actually make advocacy solely based on evidence-based guidelines. They make it on opinion, intuition, and yes. worse yet, political bias, which is probably of all the reasons to make a decision, probably one of the most egregiously unpleasant. Um, and. And, 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 and they're a major organization whose actually big job ought to be to advocate for pediatricians getting higher levels of reimbursement, which hmm. has not happened. Um, not so happened, right. as, an, as an effective organization for their own people, they've failed, as has, you know, the, the AMA is also, it, it, you throw them in this too. I mean, the, all the same stuff you could probably say about AMA, probably worse as far yeah. as... Far as um, and I just want to say, one thing. somebody said that like, oh, imagine if I criticize the Oncology Professional Association. I say, have at them, have at them, my friends. I've been doing nothing but criticizing them too. Because some of these professional organizations are, fa- <laughs> yeah. they are because are they're failing cancer trash. patients. Yes, they are, trash. they're trash. Yeah. And your organization is trash too. The difference is our organization is trash and we affect the lives of, you know, 100,000, few hundred thousand people a year your organization is trash and sadly you affected the lives of hundred you know tens of millions and maybe hundred million children so your for organization a, for being quality trash, ad, yeah quality adjusted life years yeah, of, of was, infinity compared yeah, to cancer correct. patients yeah well right. yeah so sadly your your organization being trash has done more damage than my organization being trash doesn't mean it's not important i've also battled them i'll continue to battle them but in this moment your organization is particularly trash um go on and this is where your Sesame Street comes full circle. Oscar the Grouch lives in a trash can, basically represents all our major medical organizations. Yeah. And I'm standing by that. Although Oscar's that, probably, I prefer Oscar to some of these organizations. Hey, at least Oscar's overt with his filth. 
he discloses everything. He's like, I live in a fucking trash can. I'm Oscar he's the Grouch, nice, bitch. He was a nice dude, wasn't he? I don't know. <laughs> he was always what? What's I, uh, that? I, I, was he a nice dude, Oscar? I thought he was a nice guy. Or he was just uh, unhappy. Yeah, he, was he had a he was grumpy. He was he was an external shell of of maliciousness wrapping wrapping a heart of gold. I mean, I that's see. that was this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which let's be honest. If you look at the intention of the people who make up the organizations, they're probably good intentions. But often we have an epiphenomenon with these organizations of bureaucratic rot, and no one's looking at these issues the way, say, someone from outside could actually point out and go, hey, look, uh, I'm not a pediatrician, but the way you guys are, are doing this is not evidence-based. And then you will get all the backlash, and that's fine. But that's hey, and then come at well, all you know, the organizations. And, and, yeah. and you know, you mentioned backlash, but to be honest with you, I think the article got a lot more praise. Um, yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, I probably if I if the objective numerical ratio is probably um, you know forty to one, something like forty times more people agree with me than disagree. The people who disagree are vocal, but you know, one thing the people who disagree never actually say. They never actually say, "Oh, yes, the AAP should have recommended that based on opinion in two thousand. They don't actually say right. that. They, they say, of course, we should have changed our recommendation in 2015. But they can't actually argue, why did you say that bullshit in 2000? Right. Why didn't you just say, I don't know? Right. They, they're not right. defending the claim of the article. The next thing they're not defending is no one is actually defending, yes, the AAP was right to walk back schools. They're not defending that claim. They're just saying things, Vinay Prasad is not a pediatrician. That's, that's right. Uh, that's ad hominem. I mean, it's just about yeah. me. Fine. Okay, I'm not a pediatrician, but I'm just one person. And you know, and then yeah. they're like, "Oh, well, why do you feel the need to comment?" I was like, "Oh, well, why do you feel the need to even read what I have to say?" The reason you feel the need is that a lot of people are agreeing with me, and I am pointing out what you did, what this—not you, not a person, the organization—did wrong. And no one, I didn't see a single person actually defend the points. One, were they right in 2000 to talk when they had no data? Two, were they right in June and July of 2020 to change the recommendation? And then the third thing was the masking issue. Not a single person defended their actions there. We could talk about, but you know, it's the yeah. same thing we've said before, which is they don't have yep. any data. I mean, maybe the thing to say now is they are they're really shooting off some tweets that are really stupid. Um, yeah. And one of the tweet the tweets keep saying things like, "We have no evidence that kids not seeing faces is harmful." Okay. Well, part of that reason is that no society on earth no has ever performed yeah a deranged experiment like that. Uh, this, <laughs> this, the second thing they say is, "Oh, kids who are blind, they can they can speak just fine." Ergo, you don't need to see to talk. But the, <laughs> the counter argument to that is so simple, which is that when you talk to somebody and you can see their face and you say something like, oh, hey, hey, listen, I'm coming back from the airport on Friday. You want to pick me up? Stop. Before they talk, you're looking just at their face. Don't you know the answer to the question? Okay. Yep. You know the yep. answer. In fact, I asked you recently, and I, I know the answer to the question. I was have to, I had to take a lift. <laughs> 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 you're not going to pick me up. Well, no. And again, that comparison is, is ludicrous because yes. but blind people are relying on one sense faculty, yes. and that's audio. So yes. they are acutely tuned in in a way that their visual cortex is probably subverted to actually process audio in a visual way. And so you're you're really comparing apples and oranges too. It's not even a, a valid comparison. It's and not even a the valid fact comparison. that yeah, that, that a major. A major physician uh, organization would say that on Twitter is it's just it's pure insanity. It's gaslighting. actually, and it's not just my yeah. opinion. My article quotes 
you know, Michael Absud, who's a professor at King's right. College London, who said, frankly, AAP, this is, he's a pediatrician and professor of pediatrics. He says, this is frankly misinformation. Yeah. And he goes on to cite their own documents saying that sometimes people who have visual impairment have difficulty speaking yeah. and that people yeah. may not be attuned to their own facial expression because it's just yeah. fleeting on their face. They don't know to sustain it. And also sighted kids, they need to learn to see. And then, you know, I have so many other examples from European oh, guidance, man. et cetera, et cetera. Um, in the importance of seeing faces, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they're just gaslighting people. They're yeah. so, I mean, see, can you imagine you're so deranged in your organization that you start saying things like, oh, I don't know if kids ever need to see a face. Like, why? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. We could just put a paper bag I mean, over your face forever. If we were, I don't know. Yeah, if we were all blind, know. they would probably be better off. They do just fine, you know? It's, it's like, a, oh, and see, nobody now, what I just said senses. was yeah. they're going to say Z Dog is so ableist, he's making fun of blind people. That's they're literally not making fun what of blind people. There's nothing wrong with being blind. I mean, Oh, oh. no, you and I know is... that, but that, that, that's what they'll yeah. say. <laughs> well, I mean, this is, they'll call her fat phobic because she doesn't think you should yeah. eat a Krispy Kreme donut every exactly day, right. exactly every right. day. I mean, exactly right. people, I mean, this is part of it. People lie. I mean, yeah. they can't, they can't argue the merits of the argument. They, con, con, they want conflict arg- theorists. They argue yeah. the person and they straw man it. That's right. It's a, um, yep. Now, if, and you've tried many times to steel man them and you can keep trying, but the yeah. problem with steel manning somebody doing something crazy is it's very difficult. Go ahead and steal man the fat phobic claim. Well, maybe if we shame people for eating Krispy Kreme donuts every day, uh, I I mean, I can't even steal man that. I don't know how you, I mean, what is it? I I, I would steal man it in a way that they won't steal man it, which they won't even say they they believe this, but I would say uh, people have no free will. And if if, if they're exposed to Krispy Kreme, they're going to eat it every day. And you you talking about it is not going to change a thing. They're just going to do what they do. So all you're doing is creating this interesting cognitive dissonance in them that's causing suffering and therefore you're a bad person. That would be the best yeah. I could come up with steel, steel manning it. And and I don't the, believe yeah, that. The, and yeah. the best I could come up with is saying that like telling people not to eat it every day is not the best way to do it. You should just ban the donut or tax the donut. Or, right, I right. I mean, right, maybe. Right, but, right. but that having said that, I do think that, I mean, look, she's, I mean, if she said never eat it, I, even I would say, come on, that's so yeah, like Yeah, that's cr- crazy. You know, and, yeah. But she's saying don't eat it every day. And by the way, we didn't right. talk about this, but have you ever had it? Dude, it is. It make so at first first bite, you're like over the moon with dopamine. (laughs) Like you want to just ejaculate. It's so good. You're like this is just amazing. And then by by the end of the donut, I I feel so sick and ill and dizzy and just all the blood sugar weird shit that happens. I'm like never will I do that again. And I haven't had a Krispy Kreme in a a decade probably. It's like the most processed food on earth. (laughs) Yeah, sugar and fat combined in a lethal ratio. It's like I don't know. Like is there even like is there a worst fast food like i mean, I mean like oh man it's hard to think hard of man a churro even has more grain in it yeah. like you're like oh, they- <laughs> you're eating the churros for the fiber dude <laughs> that's right i'm yeah. like man i've been so irregular i better go go taco bell get some of their churros yeah you know it's it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty bad uh but you know even Krispy Kreme would say yeah but you know once every so often sure i agree it's not gonna harm you once every so often but once we think every so well, yeah, often but she's yeah. saying don't do it every day and they're like don't do it every fat, day you're fat phobic for saying fat. that I was like, first of all, it's called good advice. And by the yeah. way, if there's maybe there's a theme between the AAP and this, which is that like I think one of the justifications for the AAP putting out a lot of like advice is that some people need advice. And right. in the old days, you get advice from your grandma, and not everyone has a grandma they can get advice from. But right. what I would say is that organizations have to make a choice: are you a grandma organization or are you a science organization? And if mm. you're a science organization, you should speak when you have data, and when you don't, be quiet. And there are many people who give. I mean. Gosh, I mean, is there a shortage of parenting experts and that kind of stuff? Like, there's no shortage. I mean, right. 
there's you know people there's 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 people who bring the i think doesn't emily oster write some newsletter i think so there's like people who bring the economics lens and there's people who give parenting advice there's a thousand million parenting books and you know this the aap what they should do is when they give advice it should be evidence-based when they don't have evidence they should demand evidence they should try to collect it and if they don't they should kind of be a little bit silent um, yeah, or or yeah. It, or if peanut allergies, two thousand. We don't know what's going on. They should have written. Yeah. Here are the pros and cons of how to think yeah. about peanut allergy. Yeah. We don't know. We're hoping there will be better studies. For now, you know, use you know. Here's the best we know, and it's not much. And that's it. That's all you that's can it. do. Oh, and and what do you do when you think your kid has is having a peanut allergy? That's probably useful. Hey, you know, you call nine one one. You do this. You do that. It's like okay, that's helpful. You save lives there. Um, so yeah, they can be your grandma, but a, a pretty woke <clears throat> mistake theorist grandma who's trying to look at just data. That would be great. Um, I'm woke meaning like awake, actually awake, not oh, like right. <laughs> party to wokeness. <laughs> you know, because otherwise it's like, well, let's now we don't want to talk about gender affirming therapy and all that because I don't know enough about it to even open my gums about it. Yeah. So I guess, you know, uh, yeah, I got some emails since I wrote my thing that that sort of fits a similar pattern as to what I was talking about. But again, I don't know enough. And I don't know I, enough. I've asked somebody to send me some things to educate myself. And Yeah, I just but. don't know enough. And it's one of those things where if you did say, if you, if you don't know enough and you open your mouth, you could either either oh, cause harm. But wait, yeah, hold on. Yeah. Aren't we just taking the advice we told them to do, which is that like, look, uh, I do not yet know the answer, yep. Yep. but I will yep. read about yep. it. And perhaps yep. someday I will return when I feel like That's I know right. the answer and I'll talk yep. about it, which is what they well, should have said about the fucking peanut in the first place. Yep, <laughs> yep. And masking toddlers and yeah. closing schools and all the other shit that they, well, they yeah. and the, the, fucked the, up. I mean, that was another thing I talked about in the essay, which I think maybe a couple points to make is that, look, if Donald Trump hadn't, if he had, oh yeah, if he, if he had not shown reluctance to mask, then I'm pretty sure no one would they have ever masked advocate. kids under five. Yep. Yep. Like the reason they're masking two to five is again a response 100%. to him. And 100%. proof of that is the World Health Organization and the UNICEF, Doesn't which do don't it. like, do it. yeah, they don't do it and they don't live in his orbit. And, yep. you know, anybody whose brain is working has to know that this is a stupid thing to do. Um, yeah. On no evidence. On no evidence. On no, yeah. on no evidence against yeah. pre pandemic guidance. And when they take it off to nap anyway. Yeah, it makes and, no and sense. Like, no, and you're not doing it to. I'd be curious to know how many, uh, you know, who's who's this is happening to, but mostly the kids are probably kids of like nurses and essential healthcare workers who don't get to see faces because like rich people's kids, the parents worked from Zoom and stayed home and they didn't have to totally. wear a mask. Totally, so. totally. And and they still don't. They, you see them on the beaches and in the hotels running around. And, yeah, but, the, but the, wait, the wait staff has to wear a mask. Yep. Only only poor people and children have to wear a mask and you, not you, rich people. You know, yeah. you know what's fascinating? So my daughter told me they're back to school. Uh, one's now in middle school, one's in high school. They told me that um, all the kids are wearing masks with a few exceptions. And the ones who aren't are typically like considered to be the delinquents. And mm. the teachers aren't wearing masks. Oh, God. So really? the kids not this the is no, this yeah. is a madness and I told her, I go, you understand that that's crazy, right? She goes, yeah, I wear it because my friends would literally excommunicate me from the friend group if I sat around in class without a mask. They'd call me an anti-masker. They'd start watching your videos and they'd confirm it because you're such an a-hole, dad. And and uh, <laughs> and I was like, you know, you're probably absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I, I blessed her. I said, you do what you need to do to survive middle school and high school. That's fine with me. But you you do understand the truth, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's crazy. I'm like, yeah, okay. And you understand you're wearing a cloth mask, right? Yep. Why don't, do you want a can 95 or something higher grade? Why? I'm not at risk. I just wear it for show. Okay. Then wear a comfortable cloth mask. 
for your social situation. That's fine. I, I'm well, not against I guess, that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I, yeah. truth be told, I've been guilty of wearing a mask to help someone feel better about themselves. Yeah, me too. Me of too. Course. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, but you, you know, but that's like, called being a good human in a social yeah, like, situation. You know, yeah. Taking off your shoes in someone's house. Exactly. Like, you know, yeah. Just like Even that. if their house yeah. is fucking filthy. Yeah. Have Even you ever had to your do socks, that? Yeah. Your socks are going to get studded with Black. whatever paraphernalia or um, dog stool yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so i mean yeah just like that yeah you know but um i don't know what to think i mean it's paired with a few things which is that like you know most people haven't read the evidence most people don't know what they're talking about and yeah uh, they don't don't know okay well let's come to the 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 djokovic yeah djokovic djokovic I don't know where to start on this who is this guy tell me who this guy is Uh, you don't follow tennis you're around i don't didn't you i don't follow I, you know, I, I did for a minute and then I hurt my back and I stopped forever because really? that's, that's how fragile I am. The minute I get an injury, I'm like, that was a dumb sport. So you're not a tennis player, not a cardiologist. Are you really, I don't, are you really I don't brown? golf. No, <laughs> actually I'm technically I'm, I'm Persian. So it's only oh, off white. It's right. not even okay. really brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I did play tennis a lot. Um, nice. and, um, uh, well, is it nice? I don't know, but I did play a lot. And, um, well for me, you know, I, I know people will be angry with me, but for me, it was always about Roger Federer. And the reason is that, you mm. know, I was coming of age when he was like, just so good and uh there was always something magical about the way he played and his points but there are mm. three people who are routinely thought of as the greatest tennis player of all time novak djokovic um rafael nadal and roger federer and uh they're all in the same ballpark for cumulative lifetime majors i think 20 21 22 uh federer djokovic nadal respectively um and um you know there, we, history will determine who's the best. It's kind of a moot point. What was really great was to see them play all these years because they played in the same era. Mm. Um, Novak Djokovic is 35. Uh, by virtue of him being a professional number one tennis player, you can rest assured he's fit as a fiddle. Probably has the best exertional tolerance of anyone you know. He's in good shape, you know, perfect health. Pretty much the perfect physical, you know, physical health. Um, he has had COVID twice, I think. He's had at least two instances in his life where he's tested positive on PCR. He has decided not to be vaccinated. Um, mm. Okay, you know, um, look, if, if, he, if he called me up in January 2021 and said, should I get the vax, and he hadn't had COVID, I'd say, yeah, do it. But now mm. it is what it is. He never did it. It's 2022. He's had it twice, you mm. know, okay? The vaccine doesn't halt transmission. We're learning that in the new variants. It, okay. it is what it is now. Um, Last year, he competed in the U.S. Open, even though he's unvaccinated. There was no rule that barred him from competing. This year, he just announced he won't be coming, and here's why. Okay? If you're non-U.S. citizen, you cannot come to this country if you're unvaccinated. Unless asterisk, unless you're a politician, I think. They have an exemption. (laughs) Okay. But if you are a U.S. citizen, you can come to this country vaccinated or not. If you're unvaccinated, you can go to the U.S. Open— if you're unvaccinated, you can go to the U.S. Open and you don't have to wear a mask. Um, but Novak Djokovic, who's unvaccinated, who had COVID twice, he's not allowed to go and play at the U.S. Open because he can't come to this country because of this stupid rule. And the wow. rule was set by the White House. And I don't know if you know this, but President Biden has had COVID twice. He's had two courses of Paxlovid and four vaccines. Um, and he's the guy saying Novak Djokovic can't come because otherwise, you know, who knows what will happen 
we might have some COVID in America if we, if he comes. I mean, <laughs> it'll find a way to slip in. I don't know. Yeah. This this fundamentally violates the idea that we have to live with this uh, disease and that the vaccines don't prevent transmission very well at all, if at all, with new variants. And the evolving <laughs> understanding of this disease says that this rule is stupid and should be rescinded instantly. And there you have it. That's it. That's it. I mean, and it's crazy. The thing I want to like push on is that, I don't know, if you make stupid rules, then like, you know, what do you, what do you expect? Um, yeah. It, it sets a bad, it sets a bad uh, sense of what the authority figure in the country is like. You know, it's like, if it's that foolish, you, you, as it is, we don't trust our institutions. We just took a shit on AAP. We've taken a shit on major organizations and institutions. When the institutions behave in a way that's untrustworthy, where it belies their common sense even, let, let alone scientific and evidence-based credentials, of course we're gonna get increasing distrust and increasing polarization and increasing and actually, apathy. That's the theme. That's the theme of every topic. Let's go through it. Lena Wen, yeah. the people in AAP who are opposing her are not to be trusted because they are literally lying that she's on the wrong side of the abortion debate. They're lying that she's fat phobic for saying like the most, you know, banal thing in the world. Don't eat this fucking donut every day. They're yeah. lying about that. They want to cancel her because of her dangerous ideas. And they're using lies to try to achieve their goal. And they're part of the Public Health Association. There's 500 signatories on this letter. So they have no yeah. credit. They're losing their credibility. Okay. The, the vaccinating the kids. You, we didn't talk about, but you remember that whole fiasco, will we approve it, won't we approve it? The primary endpoint right. of the study was non-inferiority antibodies. They didn't achieve it. We added a dose, protocol modified. Then we said we're going to look at a non-pre-specified endpoint cases, but it, then it drifted the other way, wasn't statistically significant. We walked that back in February. I wrote a thing about it for City Journal, I think, the back and forth. And then, of course, after all these months, all these kids had COVID. You played all these games with the media coverage. Nobody wants the vaccine anyway. No credibility. The White House yeah. has no credibility. Gruber and Krauss resigned from FDA. The FDA is like basically being run by the White House puppeted. They got the White House has their hand up the uh, puppet side of the <laughs> FDA. Um, Omicron booster. They have no, no human trials, no randomized data, and they want everyone to do it in the next few weeks. No credibility. Um, Novak Djokovic, they have a stupid rule, makes no sense at all. No credibility. AAP, they're saying it doesn't matter if you see faces. Blind people never saw a face. They're okay. You know, uh, no credibility. AAP, eat the peanuts, don't eat the peanuts. You know, we're just going to make up rules. No credibility. I mean, these are all, like, <laughs> who are we targeting? We're, you know, again, like, it's not... It's not like, you know, we're targeting institutions that have institutional power, professional reputation. They have making errors that are so glaringly obvious that they have no credibility. You can't even argue. <laughs> you can't even argue there's a reason why Djokovic shouldn't come. You know? Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, yeah. And, and of course, all of this. So we were talking about no credibility. In the scientific community, people will attack our favorite doctor, Dr. Oz, uh, for having taken his credibility and squandered it by promoting unproven and untested uh, diets and medicines and approaches and uh, strategies while- You mean doing what the AAP does. Exactly. <laughs> so- But, but the, he should be faulted. He should be faulted along with that. Yes, yes. Let's yes, talk about him. Yes, yes. Yeah. I'm not defending Oz. I, yeah, I want I you him, him to fail in every possible way. <laughs> in 2011, I made a video called Sucker MDs, calling out Dr. Oz for being non-evidence-based. 
Christ. And nothing has changed except now he is taking that stance and taking it into the political sphere. I don't know anything about John Fetterman. I don't know anything about the Pennsylvania race beyond the fact that Dr. Oz is in it. And I have always disliked his his naked ambition, his his willingness to say anything, even though he knows better, to, to get either money, influence, fame, or power. That's how it seems anyways, based on his behavior, because he should know better since he is a Columbia professor of surgery and has actually pioneered certain techniques in, uh, I forget if it's mitral valve uh, replacement Should he know better? Like. But the AAP is full of smart people too. Correct. Uh, good point, good point. Well, but they I don't should. know, I don't know. So yeah, they okay. should. I mean, again, you should never should on yourself when you talk about shoulds because shoulds are an imagined thing. But we would imagine that somebody would do that and he has has not. And the inauthenticity. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the kind of fail, this, I mean, I don't know. Let me ask you this. Like, you know, you've been in this business of, um, you know, medical communication. I, I'm not going to say you're, you're nowhere like Oz. You're very different. Um, but to some degree, you speak to a broader population just like Oz has done. I guess my question is, do you have to sell bullshit supplements? Like, is that part of the job description? Like, why did he fall into that bullshit supplement stuff? Yeah, it's interesting. So people have accused me of becoming like Dr. Oz because I no longer see patients every day and I'm doing communication. That's where the similarities end. <laughs> it's like, because, because. And, and you're it, both good looking. Oh, incredibly handsome. And, and I haven't even a, had he's surgery. A good he's a good speaker. He's a very good speaker. He's a good communicator. Yeah, absolutely. He and a very, he's, he's a very speaker, smart guy. Yeah. He's yeah. very smart. He's very, he's, he's very <laughs> um, empathic in person. I know people who've talked to him have said he's very, very good in person. Okay. So he has so that, that. So these are where the similarities end. Okay, now that's where's, right. Now what's the dissimilarity? Now the the dissimilarity is what what's the ambition and the goal and the authenticity. So he has a a, a, a TV platform that gets success by promoting things that you would never do if you really were authentically true to your science. Uh, and, and he has no problem. Science, he has yeah. no problem doing that. Um, and then what he does is he, so he plays this sort of like objective doctor. Then he goes into politics and all that goes out the wall and he's doing the same kind of bullshit partisan attacks that, that the left does and the right does and everybody does. So he's immediately able to reduce himself to that kind of bullshit behavior, the, the tribal partisan behavior to get the next belt, you know, notch in his belt, which is Senate, which then he wants to become president. And mm. so the 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 fascinating thing about him is it's naked ambition, it's um inauthenticity, it's it's morphing into whatever you think they want. And th this is what I think is interesting. So the people <laughs> the people who attack him, the consistent people who've attacked him have attacked him for his evidence-based failures yes. and the fact that he's misleading people. But the new people who are attacking him are interesting. And this is where it becomes pure politics and tribalism. So there's some quack doctor who's been on a show multiple times hawking some diet. And I won't say his name because I don't remember his name and I don't care. But I remember him as being somebody who's like, oh, he's just, you know, these crazy extreme diets. And Oz was promoting him. He's been on the Oz show five times. And there was, a, there was an article in Business Insider, which I don't know anything about that publication. It seems a little left biased, but it basically said... Uh, uh, Dr. Oz ally turns on him uh, as he, you know, as he runs and, and you know, betrays oh, him and I so see. on. And, and I was like, oh, so why is this? And I read the article and it's like, oh, you know, I, I used to trust Dr. Oz and I've been on a show, but I can't even go near him now because he's a Trump supporter. 
Like that was it. Be because Oz checked this particular box, now this guy can't have anything to do with him. And they they wrote a both whole the, article. But they both checked the um, unproven medicine box. A hundred percent. So they're fully, it's almost like here's the side of the equation where like he's, he's, he's violated the tribe of like, okay, the lefty tribe of the hippie uh, diets and fad bullshit. Like, yeah. okay, he was in that and now he's not and he was excommunicated. So it's like, look, you can hate Oz. Uh, hate meaning hate his behavior for the right reasons. You can you can say, okay, this is why I think this guy's a dangerous character. Now, I know nothing about Fetterman. I don't know who'd be better for Pennsylvania, but I just say my intuition is always going to be if politicians are inauthentic, this guy's legendary. Like yeah, he's a legendary Fetterman politician. Is like, I don't know. I don't know all his politics, but my understanding is he's like a progressive Democrat and he comes across pretty authentic because like sometimes he's in like um, basketball shorts and he, you know. Um, right. He's got although, tattoos. Yeah. Although I think he suffered some serious uh, myocardial damage. Didn't he get? Um, he had yeah. a stroke. He had a stroke. Um, yeah. He must have some LV dysfunction. I, I didn't follow it. All. He had he a pacemaker and a defibrillator. Yeah. And a defibrillator. So maybe his uh, yeah. EF is less than 35 or something, right. you know. Right. Um, Anyway, but, but and, and Oz is the heart surgeon, but um, but I think that I would I follow that. What did he say? Uh, he went to the store to show people how expensive prices were, <laughs> he, and he, he got he, a cr crudita or what is it? Crudit? That's right. He went he went to Crud Wegner's, I think, was yeah, the store okay. in Pennsylvania. What very well known place? I may have butchered the name too, but I'm not running he, for office he missed, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, you're he mispronounced it as he I'm here at Redner's, and look at this. I got some vegetables here and here and here just to make a crudite platter, and uh, and it cost twenty dollars, and that doesn't even include the tequila. And uh, Pennsylvanians were like, hey. Fuck sticks. First of all, the supermarket's called, you know, Wegner's or whatever it was. And we call that a veggie tray over here. Yeah, and who the fuck is this carpet bagging New Jersey guy with multiple <laughs> mansions? You know, his net worth, he had to disclose is somewhere between 100 and 400 million. How do you not know what your net worth is when you're that high? It's kind of like a wow. hundred or to 400 million dollars is what this guy's worth. He's complaining wow. about a $20 crudite tray like he knows the people. Um <laughs> And you know, and I listen, man. I, I don't know. This is this guy, and I've I talked to people. I mean, like that. That that's going to cost him some votes. Oh, because, it did. It know, has. And 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 then, of course, they're they're dredging up all the other stuff he's tweeted about, like talking about what kind of stools you should have. Like your poo should look like this, and your poo oh, should yeah, look yeah, like yeah. that. That's and that's they're like that's having that's a field that's day that's with that. it. And the thing is, Fetterman's smart from a social media standpoint. He had a stroke. He's not going out and doing these big rallies. He's not <laughs> debating. He's sitting in social media and attacking Oz with these very clever attacks. Which, um, by the way, I have to say this one interesting thing. I don't know if you saw this White House uh, tweet series of tweets where uh, prominent Republicans were complaining about loan forgiveness. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you want to talk about yeah. that for a second? <laughs> yeah, and why not? They, they acknowledge the PPP loans that they've gotten. Yeah. They're like, this This senator has had $2 million in PPP loans forgiven, and he's complaining about forgiving loans. And and so it just got interesting. It's like, wow, the, actually the Democrats are actually playing by the social media conflict rules that Republicans have known for years. Oh, I and do like I did like that. Yeah, it was enjoyable to watch because you're like, wow. I remember when Trump would do this, like, no problem. He'd do that all day. But, like, you'd never imagine Biden doing it. And then there it is with the White House. And it's just retweeting these these senators' tweets about the, his loan program and, and saying, oh, this – like, Marjorie Green had, like, $138,000 in PPP loans forgiven. And I'm like, that, now that's pretty funny. Now, they, of course, retorted saying, but those loans were to keep my employees – employed during government-induced lockdowns during COVID. Mm -hmm. So this is a very different thing than forgiving, say, a physician's you know, student loans who's going to make a lot of money eventually and so on and so forth. And so it's just interesting. Well, let me give you my take on the student loan thing. Yes. This is gonna, I mean, and I want to say, why do I have my take? Again, it's the same principle. I am a progressive Democrat. So what do I think should happen? That when we have taxing, we should take money from people with more money. 
uh, and give money to people with less money. Okay, that's my general principle. Mm-hmm. And the reason I didn't like their loan forgiveness is it, it doesn't exactly do that, does it, in my opinion. Uh, and not just my opinion, anyone who's actually looked at the numbers, which is that the people who go to college and take loans out at the first place, they're not the poorest people in society. They're not the people who are you know, mm. doing all those non-college educated jobs. They are people who are, maybe they're not the richest people either. You know, it has a income, um, uh, what's it called? A, a, a sort of a litmus test. It, you can't make more than it's like a J. It's like a J curve or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It has like an income requirement to get this loan repaid. But these are not the poorest people in America. And to some degree, I think the criticism is apt that you are, you know, there's going to be somebody out there who's a UPS driver and maybe never went to college. And that person's tax money is going to go to pay somebody who did go to college who makes more money mm. than that person. And that, to me, is a problem. And then so somebody was like, well, you know, this is the best we can do, blah, blah, blah. Anytime you move money, it's always in a leaky bucket. You know, there's going to be a leaking bucket. And I guess my counterargument would be like, well, you know, you could do better. You could actually find a policy that targets people who literally have the least and and give them the money. Um, And insofar as that, it's people who have loans, sure. But insofar as that's some just regular person working a non-job, that's good too. The second point is that I think that I think has to be made is that Many people are getting degrees that are bullshit degrees. They're not teaching you anything of value. You don't mm. really need the degree. 50 years ago in America, you wouldn't have had the degree. You'd be just as smart as you were today. You know, we need to get out of this addiction to having degrees. Even in medicine, there's the addiction. Everybody always asking me, should I do a PhD? Should I do an MPH? Right. I was like, I MBA. don't know, dude. Yeah, I was like, just do some research, man. Publish a few papers and someday, you know, you're going to be doing it. You don't need to be getting all these degrees. Um, I think we're yeah. addicted. And these degrees, you know, do they, they don't cost $100,000 to get some art history, to read some art book. Get out of here. Get out of here. It's all bullshit. Ethnic studies? Women's uh, studies? Yeah, all, Come on. Uh, many, of, many of these programs where, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the cost to deliver the education has got to be peanuts. My own major, philosophy. You got to be kidding me if you think it's an expensive field. You get the same book from Plato, and we all read that and talk about it. Like it's just the Plato's instructor's cave, time. That's it. Plato's yep. cave, and Plato don't got a patent on that book anymore. Okay, it's nope. off copy. Nope. Yeah. Okay, so that's my problem with that. And but then now the PPP. I also have a problem with the PPP. A lot of that PPP money went to rich people. In fact, it might even yep. be worse. The White House has a fair point. The PPP money might be even worse than this uh, loan forgiveness program because they gave it to all these rich people, a lot of doctors yep. who weren't going to lay off people anyway. Um, yep. You know, th- but just because, you know, but the two wrongs don't make a right. I mean, this is all bad governing. Governing, you know, as I see it as a progressive Democrat, should take money from the richest people and give money to the poorest people and solve the structural problems like the predatory loan industry and the predatory education industry. Um, anyway. Mm, mm. And it, it may worsen wealth inequality to do it this way, right? Because we're still just taking, it's just yeah. like when you talk, when we talked about Adahelm, the bullshit Alzheimer's drug that doesn't do anything. Yes, yes. Uh, You know, you're taking money from <laughs> the commons. People are spending this huge amount of money through Medicare to pay for a drug that doesn't work, to doesn't give it work. to pharmaceutical executives that are already fabulously rich. And that's a wealth shift that, uh, is codified in the law. You yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah. And and I think somebody might say, well, oh, this loan repayment is better than um, uh, like a tax deduction for owning a private jet. And I'd be mm. like, okay, well, I'm against that too. Okay, yeah, I'm against that too. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. against that too. <laughs> right, uh, you right. Know, and, 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 and I do think, you know, I mean, one has to wonder about incentives. And if you start forgiving people for, you know, 
taking a lot of debt, you might encourage people to get more debt. And I don't know. Right, um, right, 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 right. Um, uh, the, the secondary externalities that we haven't measured as to yeah. what the effects are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I mean, but, I don't know. Um, I just don't know. But I uh, just don't know. But they're turning around the opinion polls. They got the gas price down. Who knows where we're yeah, going? Yeah, you know, it's looking like they may. I mean, there's a 50-50. They may keep the Senate, which you and I were predicting, oh, they're doomed this, this fall because of their behavior during COVID. And, That's uh, what, yeah, you know, I still don't know because I, I don't guess know. I, don't know. I don't, I don't trust the polling anymore. Um, right. Yeah. That's true. Know, I don't know what people yeah, are really going to do. Yeah. It's impossible. It's possible to know. But, and, um, and I think a lot depends on how schools go. If this, if there's lots of schools issues and I think a lot uh, depend, like if schools close or something, you know, something like that. Or, and then I think a lot right. depends on if they, if they try to mandate another booster round, oh God, help them. They were going to be. Right. They, right. God help us. Well, I mean, maybe it makes sense to wrap with the final thing, which is we oh, were out to dinner uh, the other day with a pretty prominent scientist and specialist yeah. in kind of evidence-based medicine. And he made a proclamation um, that basically said, you know, he, he thinks science is dying. The way yeah. he sees it done, the way he sees peer review and every, everything, all the kind of trials that get funded and the games that people play and the way the press takes stuff, it, it's 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 doomed in, in, in his concern. And I think two he, things, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go, yeah, I mean, he no, thinks that maybe say, it's going to take some phase shift to change how we do things. Two things he said that really struck me. One is that, you know, we take for granted that science will just get better with time. But lately, he no longer takes that for granted. And he should be open to the possibility that the entire edifice collapses. So that right. was one kind of shaking thing. And right. then the other thing that came up that I thought was interesting was the idea of strange bedfellows. It used to be that it was pharma who were the bad guys. And they were the ones who didn't want randomized trials to test their products. And the good guys mm. were those of us who were like the public health people who wanted them to prove their products work before we pay all this money. But now the pharma and the public health are like in bed are together. In cahoots. Yeah, yep. because they don't want randomized trials for their new drug. And we don't want randomized trials for masking toddlers. And they don't want randomized trials for boosters. And we don't want randomized trials for boosters because boosters are good no matter how many, you know. And mm. um, they don't want to do the post-marketing study of, oh, we should talk about this Thailand thing before we go. They don't want to do this post-marketing study of myocarditis. We don't want to do the post-marketing study of myocarditis. You know, we're, you know. And so you have strange bedfellows, mm. people who don't want evidence. Um, and um, let me just make this aside about this Thailand study while you were gone or while we were both yeah. gone. Um, look. Pfizer has a post-marketing commitment. I want to say that again. Pfizer, the company, they're required by FDA statutes to generate some piece of evidence. This is the evidence. Take a bunch of kids between the ages of, I believe it is uh, 12 and 8, and uh, I think it was 30. There's two different cohorts, 12 to 16 and 16 to 30. And after you inject them with dose two of the vaccine, draw their blood and look for troponin. Okay? That's the uh, gist of it. That's the, the myocarditis screening. Yeah. Subclinical yeah. myocarditis. And right. we did this many years ago for smallpox vaccine, and we found mm -hmm. that you know it was about 40 times more likely to have subclinical troponinemia than the overt myocarditis, and the FDA has asked Pfizer to generate this data. And their due date is next year, uh, 2023, and I think 2025 or something, or no, maybe the end of 2022, December, and 2024. It's like mm -hmm. they have a long time to do it. And my criticism is they don't they shouldn't get a long time. They should have to do that like you know within a month because they got all the money in the earth. They could easily do it. Mm. So they haven't done it yet. We don't know the answer. Meanwhile, in Thailand, in Thailand, they did it, and they found that the rate of subclinical troponin myocarditis was like 3.5%. The rate of real myocarditis was like lower than that. 
but roughly, if you were to believe the Thai number with a big grain of salt, myocarditis is maybe two orders of magnitude more common subclinically than clinically, which is roughly mm -hmm. the same as the smallpox estimate. Mm -hmm. So I think that's right. The study also had EKGs, and the EKGs, I think, you know, were missing, you know, kind of misinterpreted because some of that is normal EKG stuff. But mm -hmm. there are a lot of people out there who were quick to dismiss the whole study and they say, oh, these EKGs are meaningless. But they're not saying the, the, the troponin is in that study. And it <laughs> right. is, yeah, you know, important. And it's the exact same thing Pfizer has to do. And what the point I want to make more than anything is that what does it say about a society that we have to rely on a study from Thailand for some basic information. Basic info, yeah. Quick, quick question. I mean, that's yeah. a great question. I, I, and I may have missed this. Was this? Did they have a, a control group that had no vaccine that they could look at troponins uh, in that population to see no. what? Ah, okay. Yeah. Yes, but um, uh, correct that they they did not have that. Um, and uh, but we do have data about like if you just draw troponins and random in a kid and it's like you know the probability of them being positive are, are like infinitesimally low. Um, I see. Uh, um, but they but but in my in my Substack post I actually say that they should do that kind of randomized crossover study design. Um, right. Uh, but 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 things that do make it more credible in my mind is that one we're not doing troponins on something that we don't know causes myocarditis. We do know it causes myocarditis. Okay, that's one. Two, the ratio of subclinical to clinical is roughly the same as another vaccine. So that's kind mm -hmm. of like plausible. And mm -hmm. the third point is that I'm not saying that this is the right number. I'm saying, why the fuck do we have to ask Thailand to do this, right? <laughs> right. We should the, the just Pfizer do it. Pfizer should have done yeah. this as they were asked to asked do. To. Right. And done and it the quickly. last point, yeah. like what is the real implication? I think the implication is as we, we're about to debut the next booster in a 12-year-old as well. Um, or 16 year old are you really think are you really telling me that there is not some dose num end dose where beyond end doses the risk benefit balance will change in a child especially if they've had covid already you mean mm. to tell me a 16 year old one two three doses then omicron is there still a favorable risk benefit imbalance to the next dose what about the fifth mm. dose the sixth dose the seventh dose the 22nd dose at some point for christ's sakes we have to take this seriously and think about if we should have different standards for an 85-year-old versus an 18-year-old. And I think mm. that time has come and gone, but some mm. people still need that awakening, and that's why this kind of study is important. Uh, it, ma it makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. I mean, with it, <laughs> again, it's uh, the theme of everything we seem to talk about, except when we really go off the rails, is exactly this. <laughs> like, why are we not actually just looking at this stuff instead of pulling shit out of our ass? Whether it's AAP, whether it's Doctor Oz, whether it's any any of these organizations, uh, what the hell, dude? So I don't know. I think we did a thing, man. It's been a it minute. Good. It's you know what's crazy? I, yeah. I'll tell you this this story to wrap it up, and I'll get a bunch of hate as usual. But when I was gone on my uh, an eight day meditation retreat, I came back and I and I, I like went to hug my um, fourteen year old, and she kind of recoiled back from me, hmm. and I was like, "What is this?" You didn't shower and, while you were gone, or uh, there was that, there was that, but that's baseline <laughs> stank for me. That's okay. daddy stank. <laughs> no, it's because her left arm was sore. Because she, while I was gone, she got her third dose, her booster, because school was starting. And I said, oh, it's sore. And, I, and so, but I was in a very meditative kind of uh, very yeah, present. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah, said, oh, yeah. so tell me what was it that convinced you to do this? You know, uh, at, because I know you before you, you understood that it wasn't really necessary for you from a standpoint of severe disease and so on. And she goes, well, 
it was just easier from school because they were asking all these questions on forms and and my all my uh, friends have gotten it and we hang out a lot and I got tired of just saying, oh, I'd, I'm, I, you know, being evasive about it. So I just decided I'd get it because I didn't think it would harm me. And I said, so did it harm you? And she goes, well, I'm tired for two days and I got this sore arm and I can't do some things that I wanted to do. And I'm like, so it really didn't harm you in a global sense, but it harmed you in the short term in the sense that you did have to alter your behavior and you can't hug your dad when he comes back from eight days being gone. And yeah. so there's that. So how, how do you quantify that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. over a, a, a 10 million kids yeah. and the benefit is X that we don't fully understand. And the downside, we also don't fully understand, but here's an example of it. It's subtle. Uh, these are things that, you know, each parent then makes a decision. And so, so but it, it's viscerally real. I was like, well, wow. You know, like, and, and of course, over the course of the next day or so, I kept slapping her on that arm, not thinking, and she would scream out in horror. And I was like, wow, this thing really does have a good local reaction. So at least she's got an that's immune system. That, yeah. I mean, it is more reactogenic than the flu shot. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, your story, I think, yeah. is, you know, some people may trivialize it, but I think it's an important point, which is that, um, you know, it goes back to my point about medicine and public health, which is that the burden is on us to know with some confidence that interventions we recommend improve outcomes for people on average. Um, I'm 100% confident that that is true in January 2021 with the vaccine in an older, frailer person. There's not a doubt in my mind, but I really do wonder if that is true in a six-year-old who just had Omicron, you know, or a a four-year-old or three-year-old who just had Omicron. I really do wonder. Now, I think a lot of people do wonder, especially people who are, you know, think about evidence and read evidence. I think creating a culture where you're not allowed to wonder like that, which is the culture we're in, creating a culture where we start using coercion, like on in this story where to some degree I feel like, you know, your your child was coerced um, because it is sort of social mm-hmm. pressure to do this. And we, she was. Know, yeah. She yeah, wouldn't have done it coercion. on her own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a mistake. It's a mistake. And it's not a harmless mistake. I mean, yes, there's the, the arm. That's one thing. But then the other thing is that you I don't think you get to do this to people too often before people really get sick of you. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and I don't know. I mean. Well, she's already to... becoming a deep skeptic of all authority, <laughs> which yeah, she may have inherited yeah. genetically from me. But yeah. I guess I guess I, w- I have to admit that uh, it did shake me because I felt like, you know, and I still am. Like one thing I've always believed in is that a regular, and this is something that I think some of my, uh, you know, conservative uh, critics would, will disagree, you know, conservative followers will disagree, which is that I've always been a believer that the regulatory state when done well can actually help us live a more free life. Like good drug regulation, you have more mm-hmm. good choices. It's not yeah. like it takes away, the FDA doesn't take away your choice for cancer drugs. It gives you more good choices because it weeds out all that snake oil that doesn't work. At right. least an FDA done right. So that's what I've always believed Done right. In. Yeah. Right. And then the thing that I think people have always said is that, well, regulatory agencies will always make errors. And my belief is still that they can do a better job if they follow science and evidence. They can be educated to do a better job. I still believe that. But I must admit the COVID-19 pandemic has given a lot of credence to the idea that regulators are prone to abuse the power they're given. They, I think mm. they, they abuse that power with the, ma- with the vaccine mandate and the OSHA mandate. The government mandate, I think, is an abusive power. I think... Uh, Ashish Jha is abusing the power of the White House czar. Rushing this booster through without clinical data, I think, is an abuse of power. They're not calling the Verbach again to vote on this particular issue. That's an mm. abuse of power. Um, mm. And I think these abuses of power add up. 
And so, you know, I wrote something recently, and I think maybe the last line was altered, but it said something like, you know, five years ago, if people said, hey, listen, public health needs to have oversight and, you know, we shouldn't trust them blindly, I would have said, hey, you know what, public health's got your best interest at heart. But now I'll say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, you were yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, you're Me right. too, yeah. me too. I'm in the same exact boat. I mean, I was the biggest cheerleader for this shit before. And, and uh, now I'm just like, okay, how do we reform this in a way that actually makes it effective? And is it even possible to do? And how are we going to do it? It's kind of like what our mutual friend said, you know, the science is not guaranteed to progress. It's not guaranteed to be better unless we really wake up. So. Yeah. I think that's the point of our show, the All VPZD right. show, it. episode we 24. 24. We're yeah. old enough almost to rent a car without being penalized, you know? <laughs> that's right. That was the only good thing about it. And then after 25, it's all downhill. All downhill. Then it's then it's till 50, which is happening for me next year when I can okay. join the AARP and get discounts. Is that 50? I thought, really? Uh, I thought 65. Uh, yeah. Apparently it's fifty to join AARP because and I'm oh and, and the can't question, you technically retire and just like get lower social security and what's the age for that no sixty uh, that I don't know uh, maybe I should live off the government teat it'll be lower Do you have to get a shingles like, vaccine or something oh no, that's, my god uh, shingrix yeah I'm gonna have to <laughs> I said I had a fit test instead of a colo because I'm just like I don't need to be perf today I I got the well you know mm -hmm. yeah I was just gonna say about shingrix. Pre-pandemic, I would have give a lot of credence. Now, you know what? If anyone, I'm going to read every randomized trial. Every, yeah, I know, <laughs> right? Before I'd be like, shingles sounds great. I don't want shingles. Now I'm like, well, does, is it going to cause my nuts to shrivel up? What's the net benefit? How were how the trials done? And what about <laughs> how much the, fit, the, is fit, the fit I've looked into a lot. So I don't, have, I don't know if I want to go there now. We'll talk about something. Oh, that'll be another so you show. Did it? That'll what be happened? another show. Negative. I did it. Uh, I had to had to poop in a very unconventional way to collect the stool and uh, send it off and it was negative. So I was like, well, okay. But you have to do it now every year. Um, I guess I, I don't really have a primary doc, so <laughs> I should probably ask ask uh, up to date to see what it is. But uh, I don't know. I'll, at some point, I may or may not just do a colo, just because I have family history of diverticulitis, mm -hmm. and I'd just be curious. But that would purely be to get the small, tiny risk of. I've heard many to people find saying they're curious about what's going on there no. oh I, you don't know you don't want to you don't want to know what's up your butt come on dude that's the deepest mystery like you know people go and meditate in caves to find out what's the nature of reality i just want to know what's up my butt you know i want to see it with my own two eyes it's like it's like why has no one been to the bottom of the ocean what's right there all right man it's good to talk All to right, you brother until next good time. to talk to you yeah and we'll put in links for sensible medicine oh, yeah, put, sen yeah, sensible med sensiblemed.substack.com yeah. we'll you'll know how to find all of us uh and continue to share the show continue to subscribe leave reviews it helps us a lot especially since we've been gone for a while help bump us back up the chart so we can compete with the likes of only murders in the building and every all is not okay in oklahoma and whatever else you're listening to those are made up from a show but uh i love you guys and me and vp are out right vp until next time peace